When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my dear friends. I'm Jared Halverson. This is Unshaken, and I just want to thank you for joining me for Scripture Study today. Thank you for every like and every share and every comment and every recommendation. Uh, every, everything that you do interacting with this channel or this podcast is a blessing because it helps get the word out to other people who might not be aware that here we are studying the Scriptures every week, diving into the Doctrine and Covenants and going verse by verse to try to understand the Word of God. Today, I really hope that you are have, yeah, your mind and your heart are firing on all cylinders. Section 8 of the Doctrine and Covenants says that that's, how, that's what God is aiming at when He reveals truth, the mind and the heart. It's one of my favorite sets of contraries to prove. And we'll need both body parts today because we're covering Section 76. In the next uh, month or so, there's, there's these amazing peaks in the Doctrine and Covenants, these revelations that are just mind-blowing and heart-expanding. And this is one of them. 76, the degrees of glory. Oh, 84, about the priesthood. 88, the, the olive leaf, which is in some ways is like the Doctrine and Covenants version of the book of Revelation from the New Testament. Section 107, uh, priesthood revelation. Uh, the liberty of jail revelations in 121, 22, and 23. We have some amazing things ahead. In fact, in some ways, the Doctrine and Covenants is, is picking up speed. There's a crescendo of incredible doctrine. We started with, with revelations about, about gaining a testimony and then learning how to receive revelation. And then all kinds of mission calls and missionary work revelations taking place. Uh, the establishment of Zion and how that's all supposed to work. But we're getting into some serious theology now. There is a deepening of doctrine. And like I said, it's going to take the mind and the heart to make sense of it. As Joseph Smith later said, Thy mind, O man... If thou wilt lead a soul unto salvation, must stretch as wide as the utmost heaven. That's what we're being asked to do today. Joseph and Sidney Rigdon, as they received these visions of the degrees of glory, their minds were stretching wide as the utmost heaven. In fact, they were being shown just how wide those heavens are. Yeah, room enough for everyone. And at the same time, their heart was expanding. And honestly, that's my, that's my biggest hope today. Because this revelation can't just be explained. It has to be experienced. Let me, let me share what I mean by that. With what I call the parable of the chain link fence. Years ago, my wife's uncle and aunt lived in a part of uh, Salt Lake City, and we'd go and visit them often, and they had, their backyard was super small, okay? But behind their home was this expanse of paradise. I don't know if it was a movie set or a wedding reception center or what, but I'd, I'd never seen anything like it. Just this beautiful open grass field, lush green, and then this pond with weeping willows over. I mean, it looked like something out of a Jane Austen novel. Uh, it, was, it was beautiful. But it wasn't the part of the property of my wife's aunt and uncle. But the genius of whoever built the house was that what separated their tiny little yard from this beautiful expanse was not a wall of brick or of, of wooden boards. It was just a chain link fence. And the beauty of a chain link fence, if there's anything beautiful about it, 
is that it's so easy to look through instead of look at. And as I sat on the back deck one day, just looking out, I realized how easy it was to forget the fact that I was in a small backyard and just felt instead that I was in this beautiful, this beautiful scene. Perhaps that was in the back of my mind when we moved back to Utah from Tennessee. And our home has an even smaller backyard than, than my wife's aunt and uncle did, but it's on a hill. And instead of feeling trapped by this tiny, tiny backyard, I mean, it's like three passes with the lawnmower and, and you're done. But because it's on this hill, you can just see the entire valley below. And I don't have to own it. It doesn't have to be mine, but to have the view. And that's what I'm hoping we will sense today as we study section 76, because the view is incredible. If you've ever felt trapped by mortality, if you've ever felt claustrophobic almost in this confining mortal world, then please realize that what sep separates us from God is not a wall, it's just a veil. And veils are meant to be almost transparent. So don't, don't fixate on the wires of this chain link fence because that's all it is. It is mostly see-through. And if we can gaze beyond mortality into the realms of immortality, then the mind and the heart, the soul itself, will expand to fill all the space that we can give it. Joseph Smith once said that if you could gaze into heaven for five minutes, you'd understand more on the topic than if you'd read every book written on it. You see, that's the difference between explaining section 76 and experiencing it. To gaze into heaven. My youngest daughter uh, was visiting my oldest daughter at, at college. She goes to Southern Utah uh, University. And she was out. They decided to go up into the canyons, just as far out of town as possible. And Cedar City isn't a big town, so there's not a ton of light pollution but going so deep into the canyon that there was, there was nothing blocking a, a view of the heavens that honestly took my youngest daughter's breath away. At one point, she's like, I'm going to throw up, I'm going to throw up. It was like, wait, well, are you okay? Are you sick? She's, she couldn't put it into words, the awe that she was feeling at seeing, at seeing why they called the Milky Way the Milky Way. A feeling so small in the presence of infinity but at the same time feeling so large that all of this was made for me, that the heavens declare the glory of God, as the psalmist said, but that we are God's work and God's glory. And to bring us home, to bring us immortality and eternal life is everything that God is trying to accomplish. So let's take our gaze into heaven. And like I said from Joseph Smith, five minutes and you'll know more than anything written on the subject. Now, Philo Dibble was a member of the church at the time, and he was in the room when Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon were having these visions. He didn't have them himself. In fact, Brother Dibble said, I saw the glory, I felt the power, but I didn't see the vision. Can, can you imagine being there? It's like Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowder just kind of jaw drop, and they're just... They're physically present, but spiritually they're somewhere else. And, and kind of this far-off gaze as they're, as they're starting to describe what they're seeing. Uh, in fact, the way Dibble puts it, it's like Sidney would, would start to describe something. He'd say, what do I see? 
and then start talking about what he's seen in vision. And then Joseph would confirm it, say, yes, that's what I see. And then it was almost like this tag team revelation, because then Joseph would say, what do I see? And then start talking about these visions that were unfolding before his gaze. And Sidney Rigdon would give his second witness. Yes, that's what I see. And Philo Dibble was there, but can you imagine? It's like, um, they're seeing something I'm not seeing. I'm seeing them see something, but it is so far beyond my own mortal gaze. Perhaps you felt that sometimes if you're at a fireside or a uh, general conference or something where someone else almost floats out of the room while you're decidedly trudging. And they're just like, that was so amazing. And you realize, I missed something there. You were having an experience that I didn't have. Well, Joseph and Sidney were having an experience. And, and Philo Dibble said, as far as he could recollect, it, it lasted about an hour. I mean, depending on how you count them, the, Joseph and Sidney have six visions, just one after the other here. Technically, there were probably five, but one of them was you could split into two really easily. But just to have vision after vision, the father and the son, the fall of Satan, the sons of perdition, the celestial glory, the terrestrial glory, the telestial glory, just for an hour? And Joseph Smith said, five minutes? You'd know more than it was ever written? Well, take the five and multiply it for an hour watching these things unfold. At one point, Joseph said, I could have given a hundredfold more information than what is contained in section 76. If, and here were the two conditions, if the people were prepared for it, and if the Lord allowed it. Well, Joseph was prepared and permitted to receive so much. A hundredfold more than what we have here? Section 76 is already one of the longest sections in the Doctrine and Covenants. It's around eight pages. Well, a hundredfold more? Can you imagine an 800-page book explaining the degrees of glory, unfolding the plan of salvation? 800 pages, that would be like combining the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants together. Make that section 76. Yeah, that'd be a long video. Uh, more than an hour vision, let alone a five-minute gaze into heaven. I picture Joseph feeling a lot like Mormon when he kept saying, ah, I can't even include the 100th part. But with the 1% that we get, oh, it is mind stretching. It is soul expanding. So let's gaze through the chain link fence. Now to do this one, I was so tempted just to scrap the verse-by-verse -verse approach and just let's talk big picture about celestial, terrestrial, and telestial. I'll do a little of that at the end to kind of put them all into perspective to see the differences there. That's hard to find when you're going through it verse-by-verse. -verse. But, but I, I resisted that temptation because to me there's something about experiencing the vision basically the way Joseph and Sidney did. Well, not the way, the order they did of just this line upon line, verse-by-verse Wait, what am I seeing here? Because here's the, here's the problem. And one of our occupational hazards of having the fullness of the gospel, and especially if you were raised with it, is you can kind of take for granted what we already know. So as much as it's possible, back away for a moment from your, your understanding of the plan of salvation. Uh, you were probably raised with it, if you remember the church, and yes, you can draw all the circles and the lines of the pre-mortality and mortality and the, and the spirit world with paradise and prison, and then the, the judgment and resurrection to go to sun, moon, or stars, or outer darkness. If you're old enough, you probably did that on flannel board stories. And there's all kinds of diagrams out there. Uh, I think they've even made t-shirts now that you can... I mean, the plan of salvation is everywhere for us Latter-day Saints. But as familiar as we are with with the diagram, 
I, sadly, I think we're rather unfamiliar with section 76 as far as the wording and the doctrine and the explanation that's here. And so in some ways, I'd love to experience section 76 just as if you knew nothing. And your understanding of the plan of salvation, you didn't even, the word plan doesn't even appear in the King James Version of the Bible. So plan, what are you talking about? We're just born. We were made out of nothing. The creation ex nihilo for us too. And we, our existence began at birth. And we'll live our lives and we'll die. And if you're good, you're going to heaven. And if you're bad, you're going to hell. It's pretty simple. But is it that simple? I don't know. During the time period in the 1800s, people were wrestling with that and really wondering, especially as they began to accept the reality that God wasn't as mean or as mad as, as their ancestors had painted him to be. Well, that really started to you know, change their views of, of the idea of heaven and hell and, and especially hell. And is it really going to be a lonely heaven? What exactly does salvation look like and, and how many people will be saved? Now, for Joseph Smith's own part, this was something he'd been wrestling with, too. In fact, in introducing this section, he said this, From sundry revelations which had been received, it was apparent that many important points touching the salvation of man had been taken from the Bible, or lost before it was compiled. I mean, that's why he's working on the Joseph Smith translation. It appeared self-evident from what truths were left that if God rewarded everyone according to the deeds done in the body, the term heaven as intended for the saints' eternal home, must include more kingdoms than one. So part of this is his own pondering and wrestling with these realities of really just a, just draw the line somewhere and if you righteous heaven and wicked hell, there's degrees of righteousness and degrees of wickedness. So would there be degrees of heaven and hell? I mean, if you aced the test and, you're, and, and someone else completely bombed it, then yeah, that makes sense that there'd be a, a pass or a fail. But what about people that are like right on the border? Is the idea of salvation a little more nuanced than what I grew up believing? And boy, is it. But I will say this before we dive into, into the, the text itself. I remember once drawing or having a student come up to the board and drawing the circles. Okay, show me the plan of salvation. And sure enough, they knew it really, really well. And so they're doing premortality and there's the squiggle for the veil and here's the earth life and then death and, and so on. And I said, well, compare that, uh, that, our plan of salvation, to the, they don't call it the plan of salvation, but the view of, of mortality and eternity that you hear in most, in most Christianity. And they're like, oh, it's totally different, totally different. I'm like, okay, in what way? Like, well, it's just earth life and then just heaven and hell. And I said, okay, but think about it. Compare that to what we see here on the board. And, what, and then I went up and I, and I erased the front end, premortality, and I erased the back end, the degrees of glory, and said, what does this look like? And all of a sudden, the light bulb came on for the students. And they're like, no way. That's, that's what they believe because it's, it's just earth life. Our, our existence begins at birth. We live and then we die and we go to either paradise or, wow, paradise and prison? That's like heaven and hell. It's not like they've, they completely missed the boat. It's just that the ends were cut off. Uh, they had a, a more constricted view of the plan. And they thought that was it. That was the end. And that that was the beginning. Oh, it began so much before, earlier than that. And it ends far beyond that yes, there is a, a pass-fail kind of uh, grading system, but that's just to get into the spirit world. 
And as we'll learn later in section 138 especially, there's a lot of crossover between the two sides as far as sharing the gospel is concerned and accepting ordinances and, and principles is concerned. So what are we seeing here? Well, the blinders are coming off. And the more narrow and constricted view of, of our, earth, our eternal existence all of a sudden begins to widen and expand to, to take it all in. So let's take it in. Verse 1, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, and rejoice, ye inhabitants thereof. For the Lord is God, and beside him there is no Savior. Now, like so many revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants, this begins with another call to attention. Like, like hearken, in this case, hear, give ear. But who's he calling the attention of? O ye heavens, O earth. I want to call heaven and earth themselves together because I'm about to connect the two. And what he says at the end, oh, don't skip over this. The Lord is God and beside him there is no Savior. Often in section 76, we're tempted to just jump ahead and let's, let's cut to the chase. Let's study celestial, terrestrial, and telestial. Hold your horses, okay? Uh, this revelation begins with a, a set of verses about promises and then a set of verses about processes. And then the visions begin to unfold. But the promises and processes are so powerful in introducing what's to come. And speaking of introducing, the way the Lord introduces himself, he's done that in a lot of revelations. And I've tried to point that out as we've studied them, that often the way he presents himself at the beginning is the way he wants you to view what comes beyond it. When he's presenting consecration, for example, he wants them to understand, I'm the God of the whole earth. I have plenty to contribute myself. You're going to be okay. Well, in introducing this revelation and introducing himself to precede it, the view you get of Jesus is breathtaking. And in fact, more than anything else today, I want us to see him in this revelation. The way he puts it in that very first verse the Lord is God. Beside him there is no Savior. Now, it's so easy to skip over that because it's like, I call it duh doctrine. It's like, well, duh, we already know that. And if you're a Christian, then you don't blink an eye. Yeah, besides Jesus Christ, there is no Savior. But what if you're Jewish or Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist? What if, you're, what if Christianity isn't your, your default? And so that thought of, wait, besides Jesus Christ, there is no Savior? Well, what does that mean for me? Now, that's, that's a real issue that Christians should grapple with. Some do. Some kind of ignore the question. I mean, it can be put most, most starkly by asking somebody, how do you feel about John 14, 6? It's a beautiful verse. Jesus says to his apostles, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So far, so good. But no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Ooh. Uh, now, again, if you're a Christian, that sounds, of course, there's no salvation outside of Jesus. But we live in a day that is very inclusive, and that's a good thing. And that verse sounds extremely exclusive, to the point that I've even heard Christian theologians try to hedge their bets on that verse and try to explain it away to a certain degree. Like, well, he couldn't possibly have meant that universally, because that cuts off a huge number of God's children on the earth. No salvation except through Jesus? Yeah, seems a little restrictive. But what are we left with? See, I'm actually impressed with, with evangelicals, for example, who take the Bible seriously enough 
to tell me as a Latter-day Saint that I'm going to hell. <laughs> now, now I, I laugh at that because those aren't exactly kind words, but at least I, I'm understanding, okay, you take the Bible seriously and Jesus Christ seriously. You don't think I'm a Christian. You're wrong there. But if, if that's your definition of things and you don't think I've accepted your Jesus, then yeah, it, it stands to reason that you'd say I'm going to hell. Of course, I always laugh back with, you know, evangelical friends that I'm close enough that they can kindly and honestly tell me that I'm going to hell. I always smile and go, ah, you know, I'm sorry I can't say the same to you. You're, you're not going to hell. In fact, as a Latter-day Saint, I barely even believe in hell. And it's Second 76 that, that teaches me that. But how do we grapple with that Christian exclusivity? You see, there are other more liberal Protestants that, like I said, explain away John 14, 6, and they'll come up with something like, well, maybe people, yeah, I mean, if they're saved, of course they're going to be saved by Jesus. They just didn't know that he was the one that was saving them. And I'm like, oh, okay. Um, that does seem a little strange, though, based on everything else the New Testament says about needing to accept Jesus and confess that he's the Lord. So it still feels like we're being selective in our scripture. But that's kind of the challenge. Am I going to be selective with my scripture or selective with salvation? Uh, am I going to ignore certain, certain texts in the Bible or am I going to ignore certain segments of the population? We're kind of caught between a rock and a hard place there. And those who stick to the scriptures seem really closed-minded and restrictive and exclusivist. But those who are inclusivist and, and open-armed don't have a scripture leg to stand on, which in my opinion, is one of the reasons that section 76, kind of a first step to this more all-encompassing heaven, add to it section 127 and 128 when they begin to learn about work for the dead, add to it section 138 where they understand how the gospel is preached to the spirits in, in prison so that they actually can accept Jesus and know that they're doing so. All of a sudden it's like, wow, I, I have scriptural legs to stand on. I can be exclusivist as far as holding to Jesus, but inclusivist as far as holding on to all of God's children. This revelation that we'll study today is what allows me to begin to understand that. It's a beautiful proving of the contraries. Okay? And that's what the end of verse 1 is saying. Besides Jesus Christ, there is no Savior, but that's okay. Because he will save all the works of his hands. He will make sure that everyone has an opportunity to come to know him and exercise their agency to accept him. Thanks to revelations like DNC 76 and 127 and 128 and 138, I don't have to be close-minded or restricted as far as who of God's children can be saved. But at the same time, I don't have to make Jesus Christ negotiable. He is the ultimate non-negotiable. But for those whose heads are pulled in one direction to hold to that, but whose hearts are pulled in the opposite direction to be more inclusive of God's children, section 76 lets us know those aren't mutually exclusive. And here's how. Verse 2 and 3 and 4. Great is his wisdom. He's figured it out. Marvelous are his ways. He is the way. The extent of his doings, none can find out. It expands so far beyond the, these narrow notions that we sometimes entertain. His purposes fail not. Neither are there any who can stay his hand. And what are those purposes? To bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man, of all man. 
and from eternity to eternity he is the same. His years never fail. There's no early retirement. He's not, he's not calling it quits. He has a plan that extends so far beyond the heaven and hell dichotomy that, that Christianity was raised with. In verse 5, For thus saith the Lord, I, the Lord, am merciful and gracious unto those who fear me and delight to honor those who serve me in righteousness and in truth unto the end. That's who I am. I'm merciful, but without robbing justice. Again, he is proving these contraries beautifully with revelations like this. The exclusivity of salvation through Christ alone with the inclusivity that there is a way for all of God's children to come home. The, the merciful side of Jesus, of wanting all to be saved, but, but all, without robbing justice that requires that we tap into his, his truths and that we keep his commandments. He's gracious, but without being indulgent or enabling, because he's gracious to those who fear me. There, there's, again, and not fear like, oh, I'm scared, but fear of awe like the jog drop seeing the Milky Way of my 12-year-old daughter. I need you to develop that awe and that reverence. There's the justice. But I am gracious to those who do. There's the mercy. I delight to honor those. Here's the Lord pouring into us his grace. But to honor whom? Those who serve me in righteousness and in truth unto the end. There is such a magnificent synergy in salvation. It does not come because we've worked and earned it. God is not paying off a debt by saving us. But it does require a certain amount of preparation on our part to receive all that the Father desires to give us. And what does he desire to give us? We're about to find out. In verse 6, great shall be their reward. Eternal shall be their glory. And it's a glory far beyond anything you've understood before. That's why this has to be revealed to you. Just a five-minute gaze. That's all I'm asking. Don't worry about all the books that have been written. Don't stay trapped on this side of the chain-link fence. Look through it. Verse 7 seems to extend that invitation. To them will I reveal all mysteries. Yea, all the hidden mysteries of my kingdom from days of old and for ages to come will I make known unto them the good pleasure of my will concerning all things pertaining to my kingdom. I mean, there's the, the put your thinking caps on. There's the pull out your pen, get ready to take some notes here. I'm about to reveal some mysteries, some hidden things of the kingdom, which he describes in verse 8 as the wonders of eternity. And they are wonderful. The wonders of eternity shall they know. Things to come will I show them, even the things of many generations. You want big picture? Well, here it comes. Verse 9, their wisdom shall be great. I mean, mine is. That's what he said back in verse 2, right? Great is his wisdom. Well, great shall theirs be also, if they can tap into my understanding of things. Take the blinders off. See the full picture. Their wisdom shall be great. Their understanding reach to heaven. There's, you blow the top off of this thing. No ceiling. Your understanding has been down on this level. I want to lift it to heaven. And as that happens, he continues, Before them the wisdom of the wise shall perish, and the understanding of the prudent shall come to naught. That's the world full of library books, compared to the five-minute view. 
what you think you know of heaven and of God's plan of salvation, oh, it comes to naught. It's nothing compared to what God is, is desiring, the, pleasure of, the good pleasure of his will to reveal to us. As he puts it in verse 10, By my spirit will I enlighten them, and by my power will I make known unto them the secrets of my will. And then this beautiful phrase that he's borrowing from, from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, which in turn is being borrowed from Isaiah. It's worth the repetition, believe me. He says, Yea, even those things which eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor yet entered into the heart of man. I love those phrases. Because God is letting us know, you've never seen anything this good, you've never heard anything this good, you can't even imagine it. If you've pictured heaven in some way, you still miss the point because it's never even entered into the heart of man. The way Paul says it in his phrase, uh, rephrasing of Isaiah, same, same idea, I hath not seen, ear hath not heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man. But then this phrase, the things that God hath prepared for them that love him. I, I love that phrase. If I love God, then there is then there's no understanding, there's no comprehension on my part, just how much God wants to give me. In my scriptures, next to that verse in 1 Corinthians 2, I wrote a one-word note. It just says, Emily. That's the name of my wife. Because when I met her and when we got married, that verse summarizes the way I feel about her because it, she's better than anything I pictured for myself. I always, I always imagined that I'd get married. I assumed that that would be the case. But not to someone like her. I actually apologized to her early on in our marriage for doubting her existence. I said to her, I, I can't say that you're the girl of my dreams. Because I never dreamed that good. And to see heaven as so far beyond our dreams, beyond our wildest imagination, it hasn't entered into the heart of man. What I want to give you. God loves us more than we know. He gives us more than we can handle. He, he wants to un open our eyes and our ears and expand our heart because it's, they're not big enough yet to wrap themselves around the glories of, of the celestial kingdom that I'm trying to give you. The good pleasure of my will. I am humbled by that by the, these first 10 verses of promise and of, and of personal introduction. We have to know who's speaking behind these visions. And it's a loving Lord who's almost beside himself with, with excitement. It's like when you give somebody a gift that you can't wait for them to open because it's going to blow their mind. Now, we're, we're, for, after the first 10 verses, we shift from, from promises to processes. And we see what Joseph and Sidney are doing, their engagement in the work of translating the Bible that, that initiates this revelation. And that happens fairly frequently in the Doctrine and Covenants. They're hard at work in translating the Bible. And there in that scripture study, boom, here comes the revelation. But before we leave behind these first 10 verses, I need to, I need to just emphasize what we're seeing there. Not what we're seeing, who we're seeing there. We're seeing Jesus in all his glory and we have to keep him in mind for the rest of what we're going to see. And here's why. 
I heard the story when I was young. I don't know who said it. I don't know a source. I don't even know if it's if it actually happened. Maybe it's just a parable of sorts. Maybe it's apocryphal. I don't know. But it 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 shook me and shocked me into into recollection to the point that I never wanted to make the, the mistake that's described in this story. As it goes, again, uh, truth or fiction, I don't know. But there was uh, there were two friends that were in a car. One was a member of the church and the other was not. And it was night, it was cold outside, and they were just hanging out together and, and talking about stuff. And as is often the case, the conversation eventually drifted towards religion. And the non-member turned to the member and was like, yeah, what do you guys believe anyway? And by then the conversation had gone on long enough that the windows and the windshield had kind of fogged up. And this member thought, oh, I've got my whiteboard on the windshield. This will be perfect. And he started drawing circles and lines and sun and moon and stars. And he was presenting the plan of salvation. I mean, perfect visual aid. He explained it all and uh, his friend was like, wow, that's, that's, that actually makes a lot of sense. That's really cool. And the member was feeling really good about what a, a great missionary he was until he overheard his friend kind of mumble something under his breath. Something along the lines of, I guess they're right. And then his friend, his member friend was like, wait, 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 they're right? What, what do you mean? And the non-member said, oh, well, I, no, this is really cool. I, I, like I said, it makes a lot of sense, but I would heard that you guys don't believe in Jesus. And, and I, I guess they were right. And all of a sudden the member just felt like, oh no, what have I done? In my excitement, to draw these circles and do the flannel board story and show the plan and the, the, the degrees of glory. I missed the source of all that glory. Who's Jesus? The one who makes it all possible. If you're going to explain pre-mortality, make sure that people know that, that Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God slain from before the foundation of the world. That it was he who said, here am I, send me. If you're teaching earth life, make sure that they know that the purpose of this earth life is to come to know Christ and, and become more like him. Paradise and prison, what's the division? It's how well you knew Jesus and how well you chose to follow him. And if there's still need to introduce you to him beyond the, the veil of this life. And degrees of glory, it's not just sun, moon, stars. It's, well, it's not just sun, S-U-N, it's sun, S-O-N. He is in all and through all. I, my fear, again, in our zeal to jump ahead and explain the plan of salvation is that we miss the, the ten verses that precede it, that, that, that frame it and introduce us to the Lord of love that is helping us see what he has in store. May we never make the mistake of, of missing the Messiah in all that we, we explain about the plan of salvation. So promises, that's him. Processes, now we begin to see what's going on in verse 11. We, Joseph Smith Jr. and Sidney Rigdon, being in the spirit on the 16th day of February in the year of our Lord, 1832, by the power of the spirit, our eyes were opened and our understandings were enlightened so as to see and understand the things of God. Now, did you catch the repetition of the Spirit in both verse 11 and 12? We were in the Spirit on that day. And being in the Spirit, then by the power of the Spirit, this is what happened. Eyes opened, understanding enlightened. 
we're starting to see mind and heart begin to expand. That the blinders are coming off. And it's all thanks to the Holy Ghost. Too often, I think, we approach the scriptures as, as the catalyst for spirituality. And they are. But it's like the, 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 our scripture study brings us the Spirit. And once we bring the Spirit, it's like, ah, thank you. Thank you, scriptures. Uh, you did what you were supposed to. And now that I felt the Spirit, I can close the book and be done. Well, imagine if you were able to reverse it and invite the Spirit into your scripture study so that the Spirit was the one that was opening the scriptures to you, opening your eyes, enlightening your understanding. I mean, maybe it's chicken and egg, right? They're, they're both lead to each other. Yeah, the scriptures do invite the Spirit, but the Spirit enlightens our understanding of Scripture. That's why we need to pray before we begin our Scripture study and allow the Holy Ghost to be the source and not just the result of what we do with God's Word. That's beautiful. Now, verse 13, what are they understanding as their eyes are opened and understandings are enlightened? Even those things which were from the beginning, before the world was which were ordained of the Father through his only begotten Son, who was in the bosom of the Father, even from the beginning. You see, we too often think of section 76 as the vision of the degrees of glory, and it was only that back end, post-mortality, that they were understanding. Oh, no, no, these visions encompass the whole thing. We're revealing, we're uncovering the front end also. And that's what he gets at in that verse. The things from the beginning before the world was. We're getting hints of pre-mortality here, which is another mind-expanding, soul-stretching doctrine that the world had lost sight of. And what's the focal point? Again, it's Jesus, the only begotten, who was in the bosom of the Father even from the beginning. And then notice what he does in verse 14, of whom we bear record. And the record which we bear is the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the Son whom we saw and with whom we conversed in the heavenly vision. Oh, I, and we'll see that. That's the first of the six visions that we're going to be explained coming up. But what I love is as soon as he mentions Jesus in verse 13, he just, he just has to bear testimony right there. I remember once in a seminary class years ago, uh, it was the middle of the class. I was teaching some principle, but I just really felt so passionately about it. And I felt the Holy Ghost confirming it to me in the moment. And so I just wanted to, to call that out. I wanted to recognize the Spirit's presence and, and confirming power. And so right there, middle of the lesson, I began bearing my testimony of the principle that, that we were learning at the time. And it was the weirdest thing, because as soon as I said, and I know these things are true, a bunch of students in class turned around to look at the back of the room. What were they looking for? The clock. Uh, and they could, because they're like, whoa, whoa, he's bearing his testimony? Class is over already? I, I swear we've only been here for a few minutes. And they were so confused by this testimony that was coming prematurely that they literally thought the, 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 the class was over and they were checking the time. And it, as I saw that happen, I thought, what a tragedy. That somehow we have trained the rising generation into thinking that testimony is simply something we do at the end of a talk or the end of a lesson. That's kind of the expectation where uh, this is how we end things. And when we say, and I know, or, and I bear testimony, we might as well be saying, and in conclusion, which is always the great mark, like, okay, we've almost made it. <laughs> testimony has to be more than that. 
It can't just be a token nod of this is what you say at the end of something. And here we are only 14 verses into a long revelation and Joseph is bearing record already. I love that. Bear testimony any chance that you can. In verse 15, back to process. For while we were doing the work of translation, which the Lord had appointed unto us, we came to the 29th verse of the 5th chapter of John, which was given us as follows. And then he quotes the inspired version. Speaking of the resurrection of the dead, concerning those who shall hear the voice of the Son of Man, and shall come forth, they who have done good in the resurrection of the just, and they who have done evil in the resurrection of the unjust. And then he says in verse 18, Now this caused us to marvel, for it was given unto us of the Spirit. So there we see the Holy Ghost again. Notice the process. In verse 15, they're doing the work of translation. Now, we might not be doing the work of translation, but are we doing the work of study? Are we doing the work of service? So many times in life, revelation comes when we are doing the work. But what amazes me here specifically is, is the changes that are made, because in my opinion, they seem really, really minor. I mean, the King James original of John 5.29 talks about the resurrection of life and the resurrection of damnation. Okay, so we got kind of this heaven and hell dichotomy. Well, there still seems to be that same kind of dichotomy here. They just changed the words from resurrection of life to resurrection of the just and resurrection of damnation to resurrection of the unjust, which again doesn't seem that different. I mean, honestly, if you put side by side the, the King James Version and the Joseph Smith translation of John 5.29, I don't think I would have a bunch of visions to follow. I'm just like, oh, okay. Life, damnation, now becomes just and unjust. Well, maybe that's a little softer on the ears. We don't use the damnation word there. I, I don't know. But when it says in verse 18 that it caused them to marvel because it was given them of the Spirit, that's what makes the difference. It's not the difference on the page so much as the difference that it's making that something is coming to us from the power of the Holy Ghost. This, this is one of those burning bush experiences. I've talked about this before. When Moses sees the burning bush, that, that wasn't the, the full story. God wanted to speak to him. And the burning bush was just to get his, get his attention. And so it says that when Moses turned aside to see, that's when God began, began to speak to him out of the midst of that burning bush. Do we turn aside to see? Do we stop what we're doing? We're studying scripture and all of a sudden something is given us of the Holy Ghost. Do we pause to marvel? Or as he says in verse 19, do we pause to meditate? You see what's happening here? Verse 19, while we meditated upon these things, the Lord touched the eyes of our understandings and they were opened and the glory of the Lord shone round about and the first of these visions unfolds. But you see the process that led up to it. But before we begin the vision in, in verse 20, sit there with verse 18 and 19 and understand what's happening. They're engaged in work. They're doing what God had appointed them. They're in the right place at the right time, doing the right thing. It's like, okay, now you are in a preparation. I love the way Alma says that in Alma 32. And he sees these people that were in a preparation to receive the word. Well, God is seeing Joseph and Sidney. He's like, okay, they're ready. 
They are in a preparation. And when the Spirit begins to, to touch the eyes, they're, they're in the Spirit already, and doing God's work with God's Spirit, all of a sudden the Spirit, the center of gravity shifts from Joseph and Sidney to the Spirit himself. And the Spirit touches the eyes of their understanding, opens some things to them. They marvel over it, and then they meditate about the things that they are marveling over. When do we call it quits in our scripture study? Or have we even started it? It's like, here's this whole process unfolding, and how far do we go? Do we get to the, the, the touching the eyes of our understanding stage? Do we get to the marveling moment? And when we get there, it's like there is a bush ablaze that isn't being consumed. I've never seen anything like this. There is a word or a phrase or a concept that is beginning to glow with God. That there's something there. Do we turn aside to see? Or do we just think, well, I felt something today. Ah, don't stop with the feeling. Get the message. And, and it would have been a really short section if they're like, yeah, we were studying the scriptures and had a good experience. We felt the Holy Ghost and then we called it a day. No, the Spirit was there to, to catalyze revelation, to, to help them see some things. But will you marvel? Go back to Joseph Smith history. And what happened as he's there and the angel Moroni appears and then disappears after having left his first message? A bunch of M words, just like we're seeing here. Joseph marveled and meditated and mused. He's doing the same thing now. Glad he hasn't forgotten the process after nine years. Now, before we get into the, the first vision itself, I do have to say something about this, this moment in church history because I got to see evidence of the moment. And it, it, it's mind-blowing. When I was back in college a million years ago, I worked at the Religious Studies Center at BYU on the transcription of the Joseph Smith Translation manuscripts. And I've talked a little bit about this in, in other lessons, but uh, the church had some uh, amazing opportunities to be able to scan all the original manuscripts of the Joseph Smith Translation. Those are still in possession of the Community of Christ, the former reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And through some, some miraculous uh, synergy between the two religions, our church helped their church with some preservation kinds of things uh, of the manuscripts because they're, they're getting old. And their church was kind enough to offer our church in return the, the rights to be able to scan all those images ourselves. And once we had the images, the next big project that BYU wanted to do was to make a scholarly transcription. Now, a transcription is different from a translation. Joseph did the translation. And the, the version that is produced by the Community of Christ, it's called the Inspired Version, is an accurate uh, description or transcription of what jo the final result of Joseph's work on the JST. And we've got a ton of the important ones in our footnotes in the Bible, okay? But if you want an actual, this is what the, the final product of the JST looked like, then you can buy an inspired version from the community of Christ. But what the scholars wanted was not just the, the end result, they wanted to be able to see process. And for that, you got to see the manuscripts. And with the manuscripts, it's, it's amazing because you really see, you can almost envision Joseph and Sidney at work on this. And there are times where it just flows beautifully. I call it a Mozart masterpiece because Mozart was famous for having it already all worked out in advance. And his first draft was his final draft. Some of you are thinking, oh, that's how I always wrote my papers in college or in high school. It's like, yeah, that, you're, you're, we're not Mozarts, though. Okay, your, your first draft wasn't supposed to be your final draft. Keep 
editing, revising, okay? But for Mozart, it's like, wait, why change it? I already did all the changes in my head. This, this is how it is. And there are places in the JST that it's like that. The Visions of Enoch in Moses 6 and 7 is a Mozart masterpiece. It's just like, write as fast as you can, because uh, it's, it's coming. But there are other places where you can really see Joseph wrestling with the text as they're writing, and then it's like, no, that's wrong, and there'll be a cross out and then write it in the lines in between. And sometimes they cross that out and they'll even take this little slip of scratch paper uh, and, and pin it, literally pin it to the page. They're called pin notes, uh, just to give them more room to write. There's times where the ink was still wet and so they'd lick their finger and, and just smudge it out and then write over it. Uh, well, our job was to figure out what was behind the smudge, what was underneath the cross out. What did he write first? and then insert, and, and did it, was the insertion there? Or did it just flow and then it happened? Or was it after the sentence was done? Because you can start to piece those, those clues together as you look at the manuscript itself and go, oh, there was an insertion in the, in the space in between as opposed to a cross out and then a, a new word right after, in which case it would have just flowed like, oh, no, that's wrong, uh, as, a, as opposed to the opposite. No, I finished the paragraph or the verse itself and then I had to come back and go, no, that's still not right. It really was a fascinating process, really tedious. There were times, there was three of us, student interns, and there were times we had to pour over a word and it, the way it was written was hard and the smudge was underneath. And so we'd, we'd zoom in and we'd increase the contrast and try to figure out, was that an A or an O? And then if one person said it was an A and the other person said it was an O, and if it changed the word, then the third person had to be the tiebreaker and they'd be looking at it and going, I actually think it's an E. You're like, oh, great. Back and we're studying Sidney Rigdon's handwriting or John Whitmer's handwriting to do handwriting analysis. And, and I think that's, that's how he did his O's. It, it, was, it was a long process. But it was an amazing experience to just be involved in it all. And now, if you want it, it's this massive volume that uh, it, it is the, the manuscripts themselves, but now reproduced into a, a much more legible type but you do see the smudges and you see the, the carrot insertions and the cross outs and so on. It's really cool. But of all the scanned images, and I poured over hundreds of them, my favorite one is John 529, the one that Joseph and Sidney were working on. Now, I don't want to become overly dramatic here. I don't want to, to, to suggest something that, that may or may not have happened. I don't want to, I'll put it this way. I don't want to read too much into a smudge, but there is a smudge on that page unlike any other smudge I ever saw. Like I said, most of the time, you, if you mess something up, you just lick the thumb and wipe it out and then write over it. But this was not some kind of horizontal smudge to write something in place. It's kind of a vertical one where the, the ink just seemed to pool on the paper and then, and it's there in John 5.29. As Joseph is reading and pondering over John 5.29 and dictating, in it, and, and Sidney's in there writing it down, and you picture Joseph, and, okay, and the resurrection of life. No, no, that's not right. Um, the resurrection of, what is God trying to say? The resurrection of the, of the just. Yeah, that's right. Um, okay, and, and, and the resurrection of damnation. No, that's not it either. Um, resurrection of it's life, damnation. Just it's the resurrection of the unjust. Well, in that verse, there's this, this smudge on the page. If you're listening to this in audio-only podcast, you might want to go back to the video because I'll, I'll show you a picture of it. Uh, and there's, 
it, it's like the ink pooled and Sydney's hand kind of slipped. And, and again, I don't, I don't want to read too much into a smudge, but it's like, there's, there's the moment when it happened. And I can't help but envision Sydney envision. I can't help but Joseph stopping and just kind of jaw dropping and Sydney kind of the, the quill is on the page and it just kind of, what the? I was there and the ink pools and his hand slips as just the vision unfolds. The eyes of our understanding were opened and they saw. The chain link fence faded from view and they recognized what lay beyond it. And what did they see? What did they bear testimony of? Verse 20, we beheld the glory of the Son on the right hand of the Father and received of his fullness. First thing they saw was Jesus in his glory. Expanded out a little bit. It's like, oh, he's on the right hand of his Father. This is like the first vision all over again. This is like uh, the vision of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, of seeing the Father and the Son at his right hand. But not just to behold it, but to receive of its fullness. That reminds me of, of Simeon, that wonderful old man uh, at the temple when Mary and Joseph bring the baby Jesus. And through the Holy Ghost, Simeon had been promised, you will live to see the Lord's Christ. You'll see the Messiah. But as soon as he sees him, he's not content with just eyes alone. It's like a little kid. Can I see that? And it's like, oh, no, we see with our eyes, not with our hands. But what do they mean by seeing? Oh, I want to touch it. I want to hold it. Well, that was Simeon for you. Yes, the Spirit told me I would see Christ. But when I saw him, I couldn't hold back. I had to hold him. And he took him up in his arms and he blessed and praised God for the gift that was before him. And that's what Joseph and Sidney are experiencing here. It's not just that they beheld the glory of the sun, but they received of that fullness. Oh, there's something to marvel over. There's something to meditate about. It's beyond the eye. It's beyond the ear. It's beyond the imaginations of the heart. It's the fullness of his glory. And they're experiencing it. In verse 21, they, again, they zoom out a little bit more. They saw the holy angels and them who are sanctified before his throne, worshiping God and the Lamb who worship him forever and ever. And you can, can't you just feel like, I want to be a part of that? This is like Alma's vision um, in, a, in his three days of, of spiritual coma as he's being born again. And it says, and he methought I saw, even as our father Lehi saw, God sitting upon his throne, Jesus there, the, the number, innumerable concourses of angels surrounding him. And, and what does Alma add? And my soul did long to be there. That, there's just this magnetic pull. That's the love of the Lord. And he, I just want to come. I want to add my voice to that number. I want to worship God before the throne. This, by the way, is exactly what John experiences in Revelation chapter 4, which is such a masterpiece of a chapter. He sees the hosts of heaven surrounding the throne of God in worship. I mean, by the time you're done studying Revelation 4, if, if we've studied it right, then we are in awe of the Father. And if you're, if you're done with chapter 5 of Revelation and have studied it right, 
then you're in awe of the Son. If you're in the Spirit, and the Spirit is helping you in your scripture study. Revelation 4 and 5 is just mind-blowing, soul-expanding. The Father and the Son are worthy of our worship. Joseph and Sidney are having that kind of an experience in this first of the visions. Verse 22, and what do they do? They're feeling the Spirit. They're seeing these things. They're experiencing the fullness. Well, we got to testify of this. Don't turn around and look at the clock. We're only 22 verses in, okay? we got a long ways to go, but this is true, and I know it, and I feel it, and so let me bear witness. Verse 22, And now after the many testimonies which have been given of him, this is the testimony, last of all, which we give of him, that he lives. And when he said last of all, it doesn't mean the, the last one they'll ever give. It, it, it means the latest of all. And I love the difference there. There have been so many testimonies given of Jesus by those who preceded us, as well as by ourselves. Sidney was a preacher. I'm sure he'd given lots of testimonies of Jesus. And Joseph Smith had borne witness of the Son frequently through his ministry as well. But I love that there is a latest of all. Do we sometimes rely on, on old testimonies? Are we still having spiritual experiences? Or are we just... I don't know, thawing out an old mission memory from deep freeze. Oh yeah, that was the last time I really knew. <laughs> no, what's your testimony last of all? What's the latest experience you've had with the Lord? When my brother was on his mission years ago, he said that almost every visit he had with, with anyone, investigator, less active, new convert, member of the church, that was the question he always asked them. What have you done today to feel the Holy Ghost? I think that is such a profound question to, to ponder for ourselves. Because if I haven't felt the Spirit today, did I feel it yesterday or the day before? It's kind of a, a gut check of how long has it been since I've really had an experience with God. All in hopes of making sure that a, that, that a past testimony was not the last testimony. Rather, what is the latest experience that I have had, the latest testimony that I can offer, that he lives? Exclamation point. And how does he know this time? Verse 23, for we saw him, even on the right hand of God, and we heard the voice bearing record that he is the only begotten of the Father, that by him and through him and of him the worlds are and were created and the inhabitants thereof are begotten sons and daughters unto God. Now that's the sum total of the vision that we have, at least the way it's recorded here in section 76. From verse 20 to 24 is the first vision to unfold before their eyes. It's one that we sadly sometimes skip over to get to the sun, moon, and stars. But spend some time with the S-O-N before you rush ahead to the S-U-N. In verse 20, we saw and we received of his fullness. You can't help. If you're in, in God's presence, you can't help but get a little of him on you. I'll put it that way. Such brilliant light. There's a little bit of sunburn here. A little reflected glow. 21, you, you feel moved to worship. You join those heavenly, those holy angels. My soul did long to be there. In 22, you just want to bear testimony of these things. Because 23, you've experienced in their case, to see and to hear. In ours, to feel, to be changed. There are so many other ways of knowing and experiencing. But then 24, talk about deep doctrine. 
by him, through him, of him. Christ is at the center of all of this. But what's he in the, in the center of? The world's, plural, are, present tense, and were, past tense, created. The inhabitants, plural, thereof, of those worlds, plural, that are, present, and were, past, created, are begotten sons and daughters unto God. I mean, that's a mind-blowing verse. It is so doctrinally dense. What did he just say? It's like Moses chapter 1. And worlds without number have I created them. And by mine only begotten have I created them. And for mine own purpose have I created them. And what's that purpose? To bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. I mean, section, I mean, Moses 1 is Moses' experience of having this panoramic vision of all things, every particle of the earth, every soul thereon, and worlds without number being, cre being created by Jesus Christ. Well, this vision, and again, there's like five or six of them, but when Joseph explained this and talked about it, the early saints referred to it simply as the vision. It's like the whole one. Yes, it can be subdivided into all these little mini visions. Uh, and there's some pauses in between, then write it down. We'll see that as we go. But it's the vision, they called it. And in some ways, it's Joseph's own experience of the panoramic vision that Moses had in Moses 1, that Abraham has in Abraham 3, that Enoch has in Moses 6 and 7. I mean, if you're a dispensation head, you, you kind of have one of these experiences. You get to see the big picture. Take the blinders off. And you want to talk about jaw drop, uh, feel tiny in the presence of the Milky Way? Well, realize what it's all for. Worlds without number. Are and were. The creative process continues. It's not just past it. And what did he say earlier on in the Revelation, right? From eternity to eternity, he's the same. His years never fail. He, he keeps doing this. He is a creator in a constant present tense. It's not just something, oh yeah, I made the earth. Just one puny planet. No, it is, oh, let's not be so myopic. Christ's creations are not confined to this one earth. And the inhabitants thereof, that's mind-blowing too. We'll actually see this in a parable the Lord teaches in section 88 that is truly awe-inspiring. When the Lord talks about his parts of the vineyard, it's not just Ohio versus Missouri. It's not even just other sheep I have of this fold, old world and new world. This is the God of the galaxy and of worlds without number. This is a God of universal love that fills the universe itself. And through that love, what does he do? The inhabitants of these worlds without number are begotten sons and, and daughters unto God, not just of God. We are sons and daughters of God simply by, by virtue of having been his spirit children. But to be begotten sons and daughters unto God, oh, there's a different thing here. And, it, and how does it happen? Of him, through him, by him. It's all through Christ that we're begotten sons and daughters unto God. Enoch teaches the same thing in, in the book of Moses. King Benjamin teaches the same thing in the book of Mosiah. That by making covenants with Christ, we become, we become sons and daughters unto God in a different way. It's like fully stepping into that inheritance. I'm not just a child of God by default. 
I'm now a child of God by, by choice, namely by covenant. And that changes the relationship. We're going to see in a moment just how that relationship changes on a telestial versus a terrestrial versus a celestial level. Just how much like father and mother do you want to become? Now, before we shift to the second of these visions, uh, I need to explain something. There was Joseph Smith and W.W. Phelps had a fascinating relationship. Later on, we'll see that there was betrayal on, on Phelps's part and forgiveness on Joseph's part. But one of the things that defined their relationship was, was words. Phelps had such a way with words. He was the one sent to Missouri to begin publishing things, right? He was the one assigned with or called with Oliver Cowdery to prepare learning material to raise the rising generation. So many of our, our favorite hymns in the hymn book come from William W. Phelps. Well, at one point in their friendship, William W. Phelps wrote a letter to Joseph Smith. Actually, he wrote him a poem. And what grew out of this exchange between uh, William Phelps and Joseph Smith is a poetic version of section 76. Now, we usually refer to it as Joseph Smith's poetic version. There is some confusion if Joseph wrote it or if William Phelps himself did. It, it's kind of got Joseph's name at the bottom. But I know Joseph was an amazing prophet, seer, and revelator. I don't know if he was that good of a poet. As far as poetry was concerned, Phelps was far better than that. Again, just read the hymns. They, they rhyme. They, they convey powerful truth. And so some scholars believe that it was actually Phelps who wrote this poetic version, but signed Joseph's name to it because the revelation, section 76, came through Joseph Smith. And since what the poem is doing is, is just kind of repackaging it in poetic form, then yes, Joseph still deserves the credit for this. Now, if Joseph himself wrote the poem, then my jaw drops even further and realizing that he was a poet prophet extraordinaire. I mean, like approaching Isaiah level, okay? Because the poem is, is a masterpiece. It's epic. And basically, verse by verse, it goes through section 76 and turns it all into, into rhyming couplets. And best of all, there are places where it seems to expand or explain what we're seeing here in ways that are even uh, clearer to, for us to understand. Occasionally today, as we go through the, the, the text here in, in prose form, I, I want to add to it the poetic form, just so you can get a sense of, of what's being said here. And here's how these last few verses we've been studying are presented in the poetic form. And I heard a great voice bearing record from heaven. He's the Savior and only begotten of God. By him, of him, and through him, the worlds were all made even all that career in the heavens so broad, whose inhabitants too, from the first to the last, are saved by the very same Savior of ours, and of course are begotten God's daughters and sons by the very same truths and the very same powers. You see how that clarifies verse 24? That the inhabitants of these worlds without number are created and made and saved by Christ, just like we are. Worlds without number that he's created. I mean, Joseph Smith is receiving this revelation long before science is able to suggest that, yes, there's a possibility for Goldilocks zones uh, and habitable planets throughout the universe. And on the one hand, you don't have to envision little green men. You could picture sons and daughters of God created after his image and in his likeness, just like here, but also saved by the very same truths 
and the very same powers. We'll talk more about that when we get to section 88 and have that, that fascinating parable that suggests all of that, that the Lord's vineyard is universal, not just global, but Christ at the center of it all. Please keep that in mind in all that we do. Remember, don't just use the windshield whiteboard to draw circles and, and, and do the plan that way. Draw a picture of Jesus and make sure you're looking at him throughout the entire thing. Now, vision one, the father and the son, now shifts to vision two, which is the fall of Lucifer. So we're back to pre-mortality. We're taking the blinders off on the front end first. But I do love how at the very beginning it establishes the two possibilities. I mean, when we see the three degrees of glory, celestial, terrestrial, and telestial, and, and outer darkness, there's the spectrum. But he's establishing the two poles from the very beginning and the two poles of what is, is what, what's at work upon us. Your agency is going to place you somewhere across this spectrum. And who are we listening to? Are we being drawn, invited, and enticed by the goodness of God? Or are we being invited and enticed by the pulls of the adversary? So let's see how we, he got to where he was. I need to know my two possibilities. Verse 25, this we saw also and bear record. So here's another testimony. This actually happened. This is true. That an angel of God, who was in authority in the presence of God, who rebelled against the only begotten Son, whom the Father loved and who was in the bosom of the Father, was thrust down from the presence of God and the Son, and was called perdition. For the heavens wept over him. He was Lucifer, a son of the morning, now, what do we learn about him in these two verses to begin this second vision? First, he was an angel of God, but he was in authority in the presence of God. We looked up to him so that when the Father says, Whom shall I send? And there are two volunteers. The first who says, Here am I, send me. And the second who says the same thing. Here am I, send me. But then adds some caveats about lack of agency and, and no risk and, and therefore no reward, but also no, da no danger for himself, no suffering in Gethsemane. But I still want all the glory. That's best taught in the books of Abraham and Moses. But here you, you get that same hint. He's in authority in the presence of God. It's someone we would have looked up to. In fact, we, see that, we get that sense by his name alone. Lucifer, which means light bearer. It's a great name. I mean, nobody will use it now. It's kind of been ruined. It's like, I don't know if there's many Germans who name their children Adolf anymore. Uh, before Hitler ruined it, it was a great German name. Well, before Lucifer ruined it, it would have been a great name title. A bearer of light. An angel in authority in the presence of God. A son of the morning. Now, not the son of the morning. Not the oldest, not the firstborn begotten Son of God in the Spirit. That was Jesus Christ. That's Jehovah. But a son of the morning, one of our elder brothers, someone we looked up to, someone that we would have been tempted to follow. In fact, someone that we wept over when he rebelled. When it says he was called perdition, in Spanish, perder means to lose. And so that Latin root, P-E-R-D, is lost. Perdition is the lost one. He lost his way. He lost his chance for glory. And in the ultimate example of misery loves company, he wants us to be lost just like he is. But how did we react? I mean, so often after a hard-won fight, there is rejoicing among the victors and maybe a little taunting 
on the other side. It's like We Are the Champions starts to play in the background, right? Or it's like, sha-na-na-na, hey, 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 goodbye. And, and we're just in your face. We, we beat you. There was none of that in the war in heaven. There was anger and bitterness among those experiencing the agony of defeat. But there was an agony of victory too. Because those were our brothers and sisters that had rebelled, that had rebelled against our Father in heaven. The fate that awaited them was one that was fearful for all of us. We wept over Lucifer's fall. Remember charity? It rejoiceth not in iniquity, neither their own or that of someone else. We mourn over the fallen, especially those who are fallen spiritually. But I'm also fascinated by something said in verse 25, because when we, I always think of the war in heaven as Lucifer rebelling against the Father. And he did. He wanted the Father's throne. He wanted the Father's glory. But the way it's described in verse 25, it's that he rebelled against the only begotten Son. It's, I want to take Jesus' spot on my way to taking the Father's spot. I'm fighting against Jesus. And he's been doing the same thing ever since. But, and how is Jesus described there in verse 25? The only begotten Son, whom the Father loved, who was in the bosom of the Father. I mean, to be honest, that describes all of us. The Father loves all of us. We were all there in the bosom of the Father. That would have described Lucifer as well. The heavens wept over him, and probably more tears from the Father than from anyone. In verse 27, we beheld, and lo, he is fallen, is fallen, even a son of the morning. Can you, can you almost sense with the repetition, he's fallen, he's fallen. It, it's like David uh, lamenting over Absalom. Oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son. How could this happen? Now, if that's how God feels about the ultimate lost one, capital P, perdition himself, one who rebelled and fought against and, and wanted to usurp his throne and take all the glory. If there is still tears in heaven over that from a loving and merciful father, imagine how he must feel about each of us in the relatively weak rebellions that we mount against him in this life. We are not sinners in the hands of an angry God, as Jonathan Edwards said. He is not dangling us like spiders over the pit of hell. This is a loving Father who just wants us to come home. And if we fall short of that to any degree, it is weeping that comes as a result. Now, in verse 28, as this second vision comes to a close, notice what Joseph and Sidney are told to do. While we were yet in the Spirit, that defines the whole experience, the Lord commanded us that we should write the vision. For we, and then he starts to explain more of what he saw. For we beheld Satan, that old serpent, even the devil, who rebelled against God and sought to take the kingdom of our God and his Christ. Wherefore he maketh war with the saints of God and encompassed them round about. So he's still explaining what he saw. Uh, we got, see all kinds of names here. He's Lucifer, light bearer, but he's also perdition, the lost one. He's an angel in authority in God's presence, but he's also the devil. He's Satan. That's another t name title that means the, the adversary or the accuser. 
that old serpent he's called. Now we're starting to think of the fall. Oh, the fall, he's fallen, he's fallen, and he wants to bring all of us down with him. No wonder the fallen one is the instigator of the fall. He wants to take the kingdom as opposed to being willing to receive it in the way the Lord is offering it to us. And what's he been doing ever since? The way it's put in verse 29, he's making war with the saints of God and encompassing them round about. Compare that to the phrase often used about Jesus, that he is trying to encircle us in the arms of his love. I would so much rather be encircled by God's love than encompassed by the temptations and, and darkness of the devil. We're going to be surrounded by one or the other. And that's, that describes Satan's game plan pretty accurately. To encompass it first, to make war, contention, disruption, violence, with all the danger and risk and fear involved, and to encompass, to completely surround us. Oh, we've got them right where we want them. There is no escape now. There's nowhere they can turn. That's a lie the adversary is always trying to, to foist upon us. And sadly, sometimes we fall for it. Just like there were those who fell for it then. And that's what the third vision entails. The, the results of that war in heaven, namely those who, who fought and lost. But before we turn there, go back to that one phrase in verse 28. While we were yet in the spirit, the Lord told us to write down the vision. That's such an important and underappreciated part of scripture study. When you're studying scripture, when you're engaged in the work, and when you're in the Spirit and the Spirit begins to open the eyes of your understanding, when you have something to marvel over and something to meditate about, please write down whatever it is that you learn. Uh, Richard G. Scott taught this, that, that having a pen in hand when you study Scripture is an, is an exercise of agency that authorizes the Holy Ghost to participate in the learning process. Because you're showing God, I'm going to write down anything you say. I will treasure the revelation that comes to the point of recording it and keeping it, keep it permanently. I mean, as a teacher myself, if I see students are ready to learn, eager, just hungry for it, with pen in hand, ready to write something down, it's like, whoa, I better bring my A-game. They're going to write something down from this. I hope I can give them something noteworthy. Well, God is, is a far greater teacher than any of us, but he responds in the same way. So, I mean, Jesus is the one that says, don't cast pearls before swine. I mean, what are they going to do with it? And will God give us the mysteries of the kingdom if, if we're not even willing to, to put them down on paper, to write them in our margin, to underline something, or to, to write down a note? I'm so grateful that even the online electronic versions of Scripture allow us to underline or highlight and to link to other verses and to put, write down notes. I love scrolling through my, my scriptures on the phone and seeing in the margin next to a verse a little note symbol. It's like, ah, I wrote something down there at one point. God must have revealed something to me that I recorded. And all the better to write it down while you're in the Spirit. I mean, he's the one that opened the eyes of your understanding to begin with. He'll be able to help you translate the experience into actual language. It's a great habit to get into. Now, verse, uh, vision two now shifts to vision three. We've seen uh, the positive pull and pull of the father and the son, the negative pull, pull and pull of the adversary. And now let's, let's just 
get it out of our system, the lowest possible outcome, the sons of perdition themselves. Verse 30, we saw a vision of the sufferings of those with whom he made war and overcame. I mean, that was his goal back in 29. He maketh war, he encompassed them round about. What's he after? To overcome them. And here's a vision he sees of their sufferings. For thus came the voice of the Lord unto us. So now the Lord's going to explain it. Thus saith the Lord concerning all those who, first, know my power, second, have been made partakers thereof, but third, suffered themselves through the power of the devil to be overcome. And what's the result of that? Fourth, to deny the truth. And fifth, defy my power. Now watch, watch the process unfold. They started with such, on such the positive side. They knew God's power and they were partakers thereof. It's like what we saw earlier. We beheld the glory of the Son and we received of His fullness. You can't be in, in the presence of God without getting some of that glory on you. Okay, like I said before. Well, these people knew. They knew His power. They'd partaken of it. But suffered themselves. So now it's, they know God's power, but ooh, they're being pulled by the devil's power. And they are overcome to the point that they deny and defy. Interesting verbs. To deny it, even though they know it. And then to defy it, even though earlier they had partaken of it. You see, it's the extremes that we're dealing with here. To, I mean, think about this in terms of section 82 that we'll get to in a little while. That where much is given, much is required. And he who sins against the greater light receives the greater condemnation. Now we're about to see here that they received, that this group, the sons of perdition, received the greatest condemnation. So flip that verse in, in section 82. If we sin against the greater light and receive the greater condemnation, therefore whoever receives the greatest condemnation must have sinned against the greatest light. And that's what's being described here. You know, but then deny. You partake, but then you defy. You get as close to God as you can, and then you rebel, just like your father, perdition himself. That's what makes you a son of perdition. You are a lost one, just like the lost one. You have fallen, just like the fallen one himself. The way Joseph described this, what must a man do to commit the unpardonable sin? He must receive the Holy Ghost, have the heavens opened unto him, and know God. That's the positive side. And then, here comes the negative, and then sin against him. After a man has sinned against the Holy Ghost, there is no repentance for him. He has got to say that the sun does not shine while he sees it. He's got to deny Jesus Christ when the heavens have been opened unto him and to deny the plan of salvation with his eyes open to the truth of it. And from that time, he begins to be an enemy. You see greatest light and greatest condemnation there in that statement? Staring into the sun, but denying that it's there. Partaking of that power, but then defying it to God's face. You see, over the years, this doesn't happen much anymore in Institute, but back in the old seminary days, sometimes I'd have a student go, so the unpardonable sin is denying the Holy Ghost? I'm so nervous because I felt a prompting to do something and I didn't act on it. Am I a son of perdition? And it was so... Wonderful to be able to reassure them, not even close. That is not what is meant by denying the Holy Ghost. 
Ignoring a prompting, we're all guilty of that. I mean, work on it. Let's get better at this. But no, you are not a son of perdition. In fact, becoming a son of perdition is not something you slip into. It's something you charge toward. Like, I want that. It's never an accidental thing. It's an intentional defiance of God, staring into his face and then spitting into it, knowing exactly what you're doing. In fact, when Alma, teaching uh, Coriant and his son, is explaining the, the three big sins, the third one, which you committed, son, uh, immorality, the second one, murder, but the first one, denying the Holy Ghost, that's son of perdition material. That's the vision that Joseph and Sidney are seeing right here. But when Alma describes it, it says those are the ones who deny, that deny God. And then this phrase, and they know that they deny it. It's like you, you want to be a son of perdition. There's such defiance there that it's not just like, wait, wait, did, did I do that? No, you knew you denied it and you wanted to. We'll see more of that explained in verse 35. If you just want to jump ahead having denied the Holy Spirit after having received it. We have swung the pendulum from one ultimate extreme of absolute knowledge of God to the opposite extreme of absolute rejection and rebellion, denial, defiance, all of that. And then it says this in 35, and having denied the only begotten Son of the Father, having crucified him unto themselves and put him to an open shame. Now, that puts it into better perspective. The New Testament describes this in the book of Hebrews, where it says, Those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. So that's the description of the positive side. They had to get to that extreme. They had to rise to that height before they could fall to this depth. He says, they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. So both of those speak in a similar language. The, the idea of putting Christ to an open shame, I mean, it was one thing for them to taunt Jesus when he was on the cross. Oh, he saved others. He can't save himself. Oh, come on. You've done so many miracles. If you're really the Son of God, come on down. It's another to taunt him post-resurrection when you have touched the nail marks in the hands and the feet, and then to go into it, just, it's hard to even wrap your brain or heart around. How could people become so hardened that now they want to take the risen Lord and continue to put him to an open shame? I mean, more than that, to put him back on the cross, to crucify him afresh, as it says in, in Hebrews. And not just to have the Roman soldiers do it, since they're on crucifixion duty that day, but to do it yourself, to crucify him unto themselves, as it says here in section 76. That is staring into the sun and denying it. That is knowing full well who Jesus is and saying to a risen, glorified Lord, if I had the chance to crucify you all over again, I would. If I could deny the resurrection from ever occurring, I would. That is so far beyond anything even the most wicked of us in this world really can achieve. I mean, have any of us swung the pendulum to that degree of glory and light to be able to then overswing it to that degree of darkness and death? The way President Spencer B. Kimball once said it is, he basically just said, 
it's out beyond the reach of the rank and file members of the Church of Jesus Christ to ever get to that point. I've sometimes joked with my students. I hope you're not aspiring to be a son of perdition. If you aren't trying to sin, aim a little lower, because none of us are going to be that high to be able to fall that low. But that's a very good thing. Because what happens to them, go back to verse 32. These verses we just skipped. They are they who are the sons of perdition. Lowercase p, following in the footsteps of capital P, perdition himself. Little lost boys compared to the lost one himself. Of whom I say that it had been better for them never to have been born. It's interesting because if you think back to the war in heaven, those who followed him from the start and they're in the presence of the Father and the Son, knowing the plan and having the chance to accept it, rejected it and rebelled against it instead. And what was part of their result? They never were born. They missed out on a mortal experience. Well, those who, I mean, this is the irony. There were people who, who rejected Lucifer's plan the first time, but then came to earth and started having second thoughts of, <clears throat> I should have sided with him the first time. Even knowing full well the result of the war in heaven. Talk about going against not just the Father and the Son, but going against their own better, the better angels of their nature, to borrow from Abraham Lincoln. To go against their, the side they were on in pre-mortality and then to switch sides during mortality. Man, it would have been better for you just to have sided with them from the start and to never have been born. Because now, verse 33, they are vessels of wrath, doomed to suffer the wrath of God with the devil and his angels in eternity. Vessels of wrath? Vessels. Picture like a clay pot or something. The scriptures often talk about us as vessels of righteousness or vessels of God. Something he wants to to pour his love and grace into so that we can hold it and share it with others. Well, imagine being a vessel of of wrath instead. We've carved out space within the soul to pour in our own anger, our own wrath. And there's no room for anything redeeming within us. No wonder verse 34 warns that these were those concerning whom I have said there is no forgiveness in this world, nor in the world to come. Which is a fascinating concept too. I've often wondered here, Why is there no forgiveness for sons of perdition? Why is that the one unpardonable sin? Is it because God just says so and goes, nope, they've crossed the line and I will never get over that. Well, justice would be justified in saying so. But on the other hand, if these are the ones who deny and defy, these are the ones that spit in your face, spit into the sun even when they're staring at it. If these are the ones that would crucify Christ afresh, unto themselves, if only they had another chance to do it. Is their sin unpardonable, therefore, because they would never allow themselves to receive that kind of pardon? Is there that that defiance to the point of, I'll put it on an eternal duration? In other words, is there no forgiveness granted because there's never any repentance sought? In short, whose fault is it that this is the unpardonable sin? I have a hard time picturing God just refusing to ever soften on something. This is the same father who wept over the war in heaven. And not just tears of joy over victory, but tears of sorrow over the defeat of a son of the morning, 
who just like the rest of us was loved by the father and in the father's bosom, at least until he pushed his way out of it. That's the sense I get about no forgiveness. I keep offering it. It's eternally extended. My arms are stretched out still. But this group, these sons of perdition, slap the hands away every single time. Their sin is unpardonable because they won't let me pardon them. They can't be forgiven because they won't accept forgiveness when I offer. Even in our lesser rebellions, I pray that that description never, never applies to us. All of our sins are pardonable the moment we accept the pardon that God offers. But what does that require on our part? Not just a broken heart and a contrite spirit, but an openness. We can't be vessels filled with our own wrath against God. We have to be open to the love of God that he's trying to fill us with. And that's what these sons of perdition have lost. There's an amazing statement by Orson Pratt describing these sons of perdition. He said, If we should inquire what constitutes the misery of the fallen angels, the answer would be, they are destitute of love. They have ceased to love God. They have ceased to have pure love one towards another. They have ceased to love that which is good. In other words, they've, they've completely rebelled against the two great commandments, love God and love neighbor. There's no love in them. That's not what filled their vessel. What do they end up with instead? Orson Pratt says, hatred, malice, revenge, and every evil passion have usurped the place of love, and unhappiness, wretchedness, and misery are the results. For the want of love, the torment of each is complete. They will have the heavenly principle of love wholly eradicated from their minds. Such will be the condition of all beings who entirely withdraw themselves from the love of God. That is a profound statement, which in my opinion simplifies the sons of perdition to the bare essentials. Hate instead of love. Darkness instead of light. Who are they crucifying afresh unto themselves? The Lord of love. As they're described in the poetic version, For thus saith the Lord now concerning all those who know of my power and partake of the same, and suffer themselves that they be overcome by the power of Satan, despising my name, defying my power, denying the truth. They are they of the world or of men most forlorn, the sons of perdition of whom, ah, I say, twere better for them had they never been born. Do you sense the sorrow behind those words? In verse 36, it says that these are they who shall go away into the lake of fire and brimstone with the devil and his angels. That's the hell the world has envisioned. But that's for the devil and his angels. That's for those sons of perdition, which must be so few in number. I mean, some will say, oh, Judas Iscariot, he was definitely a son of perdition. Why? Because he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. But then again, I... And some have suggested that. Others have said, I don't think so. And I side with them, namely because he tries to change. He's devastated by what he's done. He, he runs back to the temple and, and wants to give their money back and say, no, I, I don't want to have anything to do with this. And they're like, too late for that. And he casts the money in and goes out and hangs himself. I mean, this, there seems to be contrition and remorse, not a 
if I had a second chance to crucify you afresh all over again, I would. I have a hard time thinking that, that even Judas Iscariot knew well enough, even after three years of, of walking where Jesus walked, I think he missed the boat. Oh, I, would, I would suggest that sons of perdition must, must be exceedingly rare. It's hell, not heaven, that will be the lonely place. At least as far as those who, who came to earth are concerned. In fact, you start to sense that in the next few verses, which to me are some of the most important parts of section 76. It's almost kind of a lull between vision number three, sense of perdition, and vision number four, celestial kingdom. But it puts in perspective all that's about to follow about these degrees of glory, since all of them, even the lowest, the telestial, is a glorious kingdom. So look how it's put here. And keep an eye out for the all-inclusiveness of salvation, uh, of the universality of God's love. Verse 37, still referring to the sons of perdition, they are the only ones, keep an eye out for that phrase, only ones on whom the second death shall have any power, as in the ultimate second death, a second removal from the presence of God without any degree of glory, no amount of life, of spiritual life, it's all gone. Those are, but they're the only ones, this select few. Verse 38, similar idea. Yea, verily, the only ones, there it is again, who shall not be redeemed in the due time of the Lord after the sufferings of his wrath. So yes, some will have to suffer the wrath of God. We'll see that later when we describe the telestial kingdom. But in the own due time of the Lord, all of those will be redeemed. The sons of perdition are the only ones who aren't. Verse 39, for all the rest. Are we starting to see how all-encompassing he's trying to make this? The only ones, the only ones. Everybody else, all the rest shall be brought forth by the resurrection of the dead. Through, and how? Through the triumph and the glory of the Lamb who was slain, who was in the bosom of the Father before the worlds were made. He doesn't want us to lose sight of Jesus amidst all the circles. So here, as we describe sons of perdition, it's like, no, let's get our eyes off that and look back at Jesus Christ. Everyone else will be brought forth through the Savior, the Lamb who was slain in the bosom of the Father, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Verse 40, this is the gospel, the glad tidings. That's what gospel means, good news which the voice out of the heavens bore record unto us. So now even the Spirit is bearing witness, and the class isn't over yet. Don't look at the clock. Uh, the Spirit bears witness of the, of the good news, the glad tidings, the gospel, and says what? Verse 41, that he came into the world, even Jesus, to be crucified for the world, and to bear the sins of the world, and to sanctify the world, and to cleanse it from all unrighteousness. That's why he came, so that we could repent. But will we? In verse 42, that through him all might be saved, whom the Father had put into his power and made by him. Keep an eye out for the alls here. We see it again in 43. Who glorifies the Father and saves all the works of his hands, except those sons of perdition who deny the Son after the Father has revealed him. They refuse to be saved, so he can't save them. 44, wherefore he saves all except them. 
They shall go away into everlasting punishment, which is endless punishment, which is eternal punishment, to reign with the devil and his angels in eternity, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched, which is their torment. And the end thereof, neither the place thereof, nor their torment, no man knows. Now, I want to come back to this in just a moment. Here, Joseph and Sidney, well, I'm, we're seeing it before us. I mean, this must have been, this is the, the scary part of, the, of the, the visions that they're experiencing. But what the Lord explains to them in verse 46, Neither was it revealed, neither is, neither will be revealed unto man, except to them who are made partakers thereof. So don't get too curious about sons, the fate of the sons of perdition, because the only way you'll really find out what it is in its fullness is to become one yourself. And again, thankfully, it's not an option for the vast majority of us, and nor would I want it to be. He adds to that in 47, and this is more for you know, Joseph and Sidney's sake. Nevertheless, I, the Lord, show it by vision unto many, but straightway shut it up again. It's like, this is so scary. It's like, here's the veil, ready, peep. And he, and he parts the veil just briefly enough to like, and then as we're shuddering and trying to kind of wash our eyes, he closes it again. It's like, okay, that's a little too much darkness for anyone to have to handle. You don't want to go there, uh, even in vision. Verse 48, he adds to that, wherefore the end and the width and the height and the depth and the misery thereof, they understand not, neither any man except those who are ordained unto this condemnation. Honestly, what we saw in those last few verses reminds me so much of what we learned in section 19. Early on in 19, it talked about, oh, eternal punishment and everlasting damnation. No, that's not what I meant by eternal or everlasting. I'm eternal. I'm everlasting. So the kind of punishment, I'm talking quality, not quantity. I'm talking depth, not duration. Well, but these people, it is depth and duration. Their punishment is everlasting and endless and eternal. Their worm dieth not. The ancients used to believe that if you had a toothache, it was because there was a worm in there just kind of working on the inside of your tooth. It's a horrible thought. Uh, but it describes a horrible thing. Toothaches are, are miserable. Well, imagine if that toothache never went away, if the worm never died. It's just always eating at you. That lake of fire and brimstone is always just gnawing away at your conscience. And even when you don't even have a conscience anymore. But that's eternal misery in both depth and duration. So I get that sense from section 19 also. But the other part of section 19 when the Lord says, oh, please repent so you don't have to suffer. And then when he describes his own suffering and says, how sore you know not, and how exquisite you know not, and how hard to bear you know not. You understand what Jesus is saying there? I don't want you to know. Because to know it, you have to experience it. And I experienced it. The fullness of the wrath of Almighty God. I drank that cup, that vessel of wrath to the dregs. And it caused me, even God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain, to suffer both body and spirit. I wanted to avoid that cup at any cost, except the cost of the salvation of my brothers and sisters. These people, on the other hand, these sons of perdition, ask for that cup. They won't allow me to, to drink it for them. They want to drink it up and spit it out in my face. I couldn't shield them from the knowledge that only I could 
could obtain by undergoing the atonement. For the rest of you, the end and width and height and depth and misery, you'll, you'll never understand. I may allow a few to peek through the veil momentarily, just like perhaps with the help of the Holy Ghost, you can peek into Gethsemane for a moment to see what I did there. But this is something no one fully understands. In fact, you're not meant to. Well, he then ends this part of the vision in verse 49, similar to what we've seen already. We heard the voice saying, write the vision. For lo, this is the end of the vision of the sufferings of the ungodly. We're done with that. Can we move on to better things? But write it down. Write it now while you're feeling these things, while they're fresh in your mind, while you're still haunted by them and their memory is not softened by time. If it serves to scare you away from sin, then all the better. Do not allow yourself to be overcome. Now, before we go on to the next vision, where I mean, talk about a pendulum swing from the ultimate darkness to the greatest outpouring of light. We're going to see the celestial kingdom first. I just want to reiterate what we saw in verse after verse in that little middle aside. Sons of perdition, only ones, only ones, everyone else, all, 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 all. Do you understand what the Lord is doing here? This is such an all-encompassing embrace of God. Now, there was a, a, a doctrine that was increasing in popularity during Joseph Smith's time called universalism. Uh, his father, Joseph Smith Sr., his grandfather, Azel Smith, were both leaning in the universalist direction. And what that meant was universal as in universal salvation. We're all going to make it. Now, that sounds like, like good news, and it sounds like what we're about to see with these degrees of glory, but not quite. Remember, often I've said as we swing the pendulum back and forth, as society or history itself tries to prove the contraries unsuccessfully, that instead of correcting, we tend to overcorrect. Well, if you had this view of a lonely heaven that was you inherited from Calvinism, there's Edwards, uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God, and there's just a few that God has predestined for election, and the rest are all elected for damnation. Uh, that idea of this angry, vengeful God is starting to soften and, and correct in the 1700s and 1800s, but it overcorrected in certain circles. And we went from angry God to divine pushover, maybe we call it, from, an, from a vengeful heavenly father to an overly indulgent heavenly grandfather. Hey, everyone having a good time? Let me spoil you, because I don't have to worry quite so much about how you turn out. I'll just sugar you up and then send you home. I'm looking forward to grandfatherhood. My dad and father-in-law make it look really, really good. They assure me that it is. But in some ways, again, as far as salvation and, and expectation is concerned, as far as balancing mercy with justice, that overcorrection to universal salvation sounds a lot like the doctrine of Nehor in the Book of Mormon. Oh, we're all going to make it. It's all good. No worries. No need to live any level of righteousness in this life. Now you're starting to see the danger of the, of the pendulum swing, the overcorrection. You hit the ball too hard and out went up and rolled over the other side. Instead of all anger, it's now all indulgence. Instead of all justice, now it's all mercy. And instead of very few being saved, now it's everybody will be saved, no matter how they live their lives. And that was the danger. In fact, so many of the early members of the church who had come from 
Puritan heritages, okay? Calvinism was kind of their default position, that even as the Lord was trying to correct it and help them understand, no, it's not a fiery hell for everyone that makes any kind of mistake. It's not a lonely heaven. But as the Lord was correcting it, they were so afraid of, of the overcorrection that they wouldn't even let the correction take place. And Section 76, honestly, freaked out a lot of early church members. They're like, I don't, I don't know about this. Like I said, we take it for granted. They didn't. It was hard for a lot of members to swallow. Brigham Young described the, the reception a little bit later. He said, when God revealed to Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon that there was a place prepared for all, according to the light they had received and the rejection of evil and practice of good, it was a great trial to many. And some apostatized because God was not going to send to everlasting punishment heathens and infants. That's so interesting. Can you picture people? Again, this is the lack of charity rejoicing in iniquity. It's like, yes, condemn the heathen. Unbaptized infants? Oh, send them to hell. Yikes. Uh, search your heart there. Uh, you know, so Soften things a little bit. Well, some apostatized because of it. To go back to Brigham's language, they were mad that he had a place of salvation in due time for all and would bless the honest and virtuous and truthful whether they ever belonged to any church or not. It was a new doctrine to this generation, and many stumbled at it. In fact, Brigham himself was one who stumbled a little bit. He didn't fall, he didn't apostatize, but he admitted this. He said, my traditions were such, and that's all they were, traditions, what he inherited from his Calvinist fathers and grandfathers. My traditions were such that when the vision came first to me, it was directly contrary and opposed to my former education. But rather than reject it, listen to this. I said to, him, to himself, wait a little. I did not reject it, but I could not understand it. So what did he do? He prayed about it. He said, I had to think and pray, to read and think, until I knew and fully understood it for myself. That is a good example to follow. Whenever you hear something from prophets and apostles that may shake your tradition, actually had a, a, an amazing conversation just yesterday with a, a new convert of the church that uh, went from evangelicalism to the restored gospel and, and is struggling to, to help other people, her old evangelical friends, understand this decision, uh, her, her family and so on. A wonderful, wonderful young woman. And it was interesting to discuss this and realize what she was up against was former education and tradition and her her circle of friends and family were just unbending. Like, no, 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 you, you've rejected everything. And what was she hoping her family would eventually do? Take Brigham's advice. Just wait a little. Is it lack of acceptance simply because of lack of understanding? Then seek understanding. Think and pray. Read and think. I love what Brigham is just wrestling with. I want to understand this. And once he does, he sees its beauty. He knows of its truth. What I love about this is, is the Lord is, is proving the contrary. On the, on the level of salvation itself, he is balancing the pulls of universalism on one hand, but the dangers of a lonely heaven on the other. It's neither hedonism nor fatalism. He's balancing inclusivity and exclusivity. He's trying to help them strike the middle between not repenting, because I don't think I need to, because everybody's going to be saved anyway, or not repenting because I don't think it's worth it or that I can because nobody's going to make it. Now in the poetic version of this part, I love it. 
It says that he came to the world in the middle of time, speaking of Jesus, to lay down his life for his friends and his foes and bear away sin in a mission of love and sanctify earth for a blessed repose. Tis decreed that he'll save all the works of his hands and sanctify them by his own precious blood and purify earth for the Sabbath of rest by the agent of fire as it was by the flood. That is the good news of the gospel. And I love the fact that it's couched right in the middle of the scariest of the visions, the sons of perdition themselves. Well, let me close it up really quick. Kind of allow yourself a, a shudder of the soul. Write it down. And now let's move on. And verse 50 begins this vision of the celestial kingdom. It's a beautiful one. It lasts the next 20 verses or so. In verse 50, again, we bear record. Let me have, you know, bear my testimony every chance I get. For we saw and heard, and this is the testimony of the gospel of Christ, concerning them who shall come forth in the resurrection of the just. Now, this is actually, this is where two visions, you get two visions for the price of one, okay? We keep seeing this, this uh, pause at the end of each one with the Lord saying, write it down. And okay, now I can give you another vision. This one is going to encompass both the celestial and the terrestrial kingdoms uh, before the Lord gives us another pause and, and reminds them to write it down. So I count this as two visions because there's the celestial and there's the terrestrial. But in reality, it's one big vision, which he refers to as the resurrection of the just. You see, if we split it in half, like John 5 suggests, there's a resurrection of the just and the unjust. But we have the three degrees of glory. Oh, and the sons of perdition. Well, 50-50, you know, split them in two and you have the resurrection of the just. That's the celestial and the terrestrial. Celestial is the morning of the first resurrection, which would put the terrestrial in like the afternoon or evening of the first resurrection. And then there's the resurrection of the unjust with the telestial being resurrected. And then finally, the sons of perdition. Yes, they'll be resurrected too. They got a body in this life. They will get it back. That'll actually lead to some interesting dilemmas in, in hell, in outer darkness. Since, as Joseph said, anyone with a body has power over those without a body. That's going to be really interesting to see how, that, how that's going to work. Sons of perdition from mortality with a resurrected but completely unglorified body uh, among those who lost the war in heaven and were never born. Better for them had they never been born. Interesting stuff to consider. But let's, let's not worry about that resurrection. Let's talk about this one, the resurrection of the just. Verse 51. They are they who received the testimony of Jesus. The first thing we learn, we'll come back to this thought, but the first thing we learned about celestial souls was their relationship with Jesus Christ. They received the testimony of Jesus. As a result of it, what did they do? They believed on his name and were baptized after the manner of his burial, being buried in the water in his name, and this according to the commandment which he has given. So it was faith and works but all growing out of the testimony of Jesus that they had received, been open to, a vessel to receive this, this light and truth. Verse 52, that by keeping the commandments, they might be washed and cleansed from all their sins and receive the Holy Spirit by the laying on of the hands of him who is ordained and sealed unto this power. Now, some, I think, misinterpret verse 52 to say, oh, wait, we're washed and cleansed by keeping the commandments? Oh, 
So is that what saves us from sin? I've kept the commandments. This sounds a lot like works righteousness and I've earned my way. Well, that's not what Paul teaches in his epistles. It's not what the Book of Mormon teaches in so many of, of its books. It's, we're not saved by our works. We're not saved by our obedience. We're saved by Jesus Christ. And so if we want to fully understand verse 52, that by keeping the commandments, well, what commandments? The commandments that bind us to Christ. Ah, the commandments that we want to live because I have a testimony of Jesus and have received, been open to his love. It's, it's Jesus that saves me. It's by learning to obey his commandments that I prepare my soul to receive what the Lord is offering. As Brad Wilcox has beautifully said, we're not earning heaven, we're learning heaven. And our obedience is what allows us to develop what Elder Maxwell called righteous reflexes. We stop giving God the stiff arm when he's, when he's offering us the salvation that can only come from him. We're receiving the Holy Spirit. We're receiving God's glory. We're receiving the celestial kingdom. We're receiving God's commandments, all in the spirit of, of faith and trust, because what happened first? We received the testimony of Jesus. Now, verse 53, they overcome by faith. Compare that to those who were overcome by the adversary when he encompassed them around and, and made war against the saints of God. These celestial souls overcome by faith and are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, which the Father sheds forth upon all those who are just and true. There's an inclusivity, all those, and an exclusivity, who are just and true, and sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. When a letter was written anciently and they sealed it with kind of the, the, the royal seal, kind of signed, sealed, and delivered, uh, the Holy Ghost has given you his seal of approval. God wants to bring you home. In verse 54, the description of these people continue. They are they who are the church of the firstborn. Remember we talked about this early on with the big C church uh, that has nothing to fear from the restoration of the gospel? As long as you're not part of the great and abominable church that's fighting against Zion, then you're part of the church of the Lamb. If you're living according to any degree of light, then you're moving in the right direction. Within that big C church is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's trying to draw everyone into that circle through covenants and ordinances of, of the priesthood. But even within that is how well are you living it? You may have the authority of the priesthood in, in, that, C, in, that, in that circled church, but the power of the priesthood, that, that's your connection with heaven. It's one thing to be part of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's another thing to be part of the Church of the Firstborn. And please don't take it at some like weird schism group that's proclaiming themselves to be, oh no, we are the Church of the Firstborn. Beware of someone trying to, to trademark the title and say, we're now the elect of the elect. We're the chosen few. Even that speaks of the kind of pride that would be an automatic disqualifier. I mean, think about that. Does claiming membership in that kind of an organization disqualify you from being part of the real church of the firstborn, where people are, are not caught up in that kind of differentiation, but are simply coming unto Christ with, with full purpose of heart? I, the Lord, require the heart and the willing mind. Are you in the church? Well, are you of the church of the firstborn himself? Have you become like Jesus? After all, if sons of perdition have become like perdition, capital P, then the church of the firstborn 
will have become like the firstborn son of God. I'm trying to be like Jesus. 55, they are they into whose hands the Father has given all things because he can trust you with all things. 56, they are they who are priests and kings who have received of his fullness and of his glory. That's what makes Christ the king of those kings, the high priest of those lesser priests and priestesses. 57, they are priests of the Most High after the order of Melchizedek, which was after the order of Enoch, which was after the order of the only begotten Son. We'll see more of that explained in section 107 as far as why call it the Melchizedek Priesthood. But I love almost kind of this crescendo, this, this, this echoes getting louder and louder that, oh yeah, but they're, they're priests. Ooh, Melchizedek. Ooh, Enoch. Oh, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. You see him through all of this? Please superimpose the picture of Jesus over any plan of salvation you ever draw on the board. 58, wherefore, as it is written, they are gods, lowercase g, even the sons of God, capital G. Divine potential is one of the most awe-inspiring, jaw-dropping doctrines God has given us. What Paul, how Paul described it to the, to the Romans, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. <laughs> wow, this is what he's offering us in the celestial kingdom. Verse 59, wherefore all things are theirs, whether life or death or things present or things to come, all are theirs and they are Christ's and Christ is God's. You get that sense in the oath and covenant of the priesthood. That if you receive his servants, you receive Christ. If you receive Christ, you receive the Father. If you receive the Father, you receive all that the Father hath because he can trust you with it. He's wanted to give it to you all along. It is his good will to give you the kingdom. Verse 60, they shall overcome all things instead of being overcome by the adversary. Wherefore, verse 61, let no man glory in man, but rather let him glory in God, who shall subdue all enemies under his feet. Such an important reminder right in the middle of this. Because you, you, you read these verses and if you think, wow, that's what he's offering? And if I can just... Trust in the atonement of Christ and, re and receive a testimony of him and follow his commandments for me. I can, and I can, and I can. And your head gets bigger and bigger and bigger until we can't fit through the door of the church of the firstborn anymore. And so how, what does the Lord remind us of right in the middle? Don't glory in man. See, that's the danger of losing sight of Jesus and not drawing him first and foremost on your windshield whiteboard. Oh, it's the glory of the sun, and you're drawing it, S-U-N, instead of drawing him, S-O-N, and giving him all glory. Don't glory in yourself that oh, I'm celestial material, because that disqualifies us automatically. It's like admitting that you're humble. Dang it, I just lost it again. Uh, admitting you're celestial, it's I mean, not in a prideful way, not to glory in man, glory in God. He's the one that subdues all enemies under his feet. And how beautiful upon the mountains are they. Verse 62, thanks to him, not thanks to us, these shall dwell in the presence of God and his Christ forever and ever. Beautiful possessive pronoun, his Christ. Is he ours? Do we claim him so he can claim us? Verse 63, these are they whom he shall bring with him when he shall come in the clouds of heaven to reign on the earth over his people. 
Can you hear the echo of let Zion in her beauty rise that we talked about from section 65? Let Zion in her beauty rise from below so Zion can descend in her beauty from above. May the kingdom of God go forth so that the kingdom of heaven may come. Zion below, Zion above, Zion built, Zion brought, all of this coming together. He will come with them in the clouds. He will come in heaven, bringing heaven with him. Verse 64, these are they who shall have part in the first resurrection. These are they who shall come forth in the resurrection of the just. These are they who come unto Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly place, the holiest of all. Does that put into proper perspective what we're trying to do in building Zion? I mean, Joseph and Sidney and, and some friends, Philo Dibble and other spectators watching a vision that they don't get to behold for themselves, they're in the upper room in the John Johnson farm, Hiram, Ohio. 1832, I mean, some saints are traveling down to Independence, Missouri. Some are coming back. We've had problems on the way. You can't see with the natural eye for the present time what God is trying to prepare. It's like, really, Zion? Oh, you just wait. You just wait for Mount Zion to start to expand. You just wait for the city of the living God to be built. The heavenly place, the holiest of all. You could say that, the holy of holies. This is temple language. This is Zion language. And we're trying to build it because the Lord is trying to bring it. A little preview of coming attractions as far as heaven on earth, celestial kingdom among us. 67, these are they who have come to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of Enoch and of the firstborn. This is not a lonely heaven. When John sees this in his heavenly vision, this is uh, Revelation 7 verse 9, he describes it as a great multitude, which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues. You ever been to a steak dance right when it starts? School dances seem to do the same thing. If you went to prom or homecoming or things like that, nobody's there. It's like the steak young men and the steak young women's presences are there, maybe a couple of high counselors, but like no youth. Except maybe a couple who didn't realize that, wait, nobody else comes right when it starts. It said it started at 7. Well, yeah, it means they start trickling in at like 7.30. And there's just some lonely high counselor standing by the punch bowl. Lonely. That's not the celestial kingdom. There's no like tumbleweeds rolling past. It's like, did I get the right address? No, innumerable company of angels. No man could number all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people. Even when the book of Revelation talks about the 144,000, that's not a literal head count. <laughs> I mean, 144, that's 12 times 12. Ooh, so like 12 tribes of Israel, but multiplied. Ooh, by, by a, and then times it again by a thousand. When it describes the celestial city, it, it puts it in such massive terms, like 1,500 miles cubed. I mean, that's, I mean, the International Space Station would pass through the airspace of, of the city of Zion if we took those measurements literally. Now, if we take them symbolically, what is this? A perfect cube? Oh, that's the holiest of all. That's the holy of holies in the temple. It was a perfect cube also. But unlike the holy of holies that only allowed the high priest on the day of atonement to enter, 
This holiest of all, who's it for? Everyone. Come. I rent the veil in twain from top to bottom. I want you to come into the holy of holies, the holiest of all. Why do you think I have to make the city of, of Zion so big? There's got to be room for everybody. So get there early, okay? Don't show up fashionably late, afraid that you're going to be lonely the first half an hour or so. Oh, no. Seek him early and find him, and you'll find yourself with him. In verse 68, these are they whose names are written in heaven, where God and Christ are the judge of all. Remember section 18? It's his name by which we'll be called. Well, our names are written there by him whose name can save us all. Verse 69, these are they who are just men made perfect through Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, who wrought out his perfect atonement through the shedding of his own blood. You see Jesus keep being mentioned Keep coming up throughout this revelation. Never lose sight of him. They are just men. Now, on the one hand, we, I know that he meant by this just as in justice. These are just men. But part of me also, back to avoiding that, that pride that disqualifies me. Oh, they're just men. <laughs> Compared to Jesus, I'm just a man. And if I ever hope to go from just man to just man... Is it on me? Oh, no, no, no. Do not glory in man. Rather, glory in God. How do I become just? Only through justice personified. How do I become righteous? Only through righteousness himself. How do I become perfect? Oh, I have to be made perfect. In fact, the word perfect shows up twice in this verse. And don't, don't separate the two. Because if you are made perfect, how's it happen? Well, through the perfect atonement. I had to be made perfect. The atonement was perfect because a perfect Savior performed it. And his perfection starts to get on me as I come unto him. Perfected in Christ is the way Moroni says it on the last column of the Book of Mormon. That's what we're aiming for. Verse 70, this description of the celestial kingdom that ends, these are they whose bodies are celestial whose glory is that of the sun, S-U-N and S-O-N, even the glory of God, the highest of all, whose glory the sun of the firmament is written of as being typical. In other words, as a type, a type and shadow, but no shadow here because it's sunlight, brilliant, illuminating light. And our bodies will become that, whose bodies are celestial. Remember, he's talking about the resurrection of the just. And so resurrected into a celestial body, that's, that's what we're after. It's described in the poetic version like this. For these overcome by their faith and their works, being tried in their lifetime as purified gold, and sealed by the spirit of promise to life by men called of God as was Aaron of old. They are they of the church of the firstborn of God, and unto whose hands he committeth all things, for they hold the keys of the kingdom of heaven and reign with the Savior as priests and as kings. Now the second half of this vision of the just then proceeds. And we shift from celestial glory to terrestrial glory. In verse 71 it's described like this. Again we saw the terrestrial world. And behold and lo, these are they who are of the terrestrial 
whose glory differs from that of the church of the firstborn, who have received the fullness of the Father, even as that of the moon differs from the sun in the firmament. So we're shifting from sun to moon here. Verse 72, Behold, these are they who died without law. Now don't jump to conclusions here quite yet. If, oh, they died without law, they didn't know any better? In technical terms, they call it the fate of the unevangelized. Uh, unevangelized means ungospeled. They never learned about Jesus Christ. And well, if you can't be saved without Jesus, then you just can't be saved. So they're out. Well, if we stop there and go, wait, they died without law? So the highest that they can get is the terrestrial kingdom? I mean, it's better than send them to hell, like uh, some people do. But that still seems a little, not only unmerciful, but unjust. They never had a chance. Well, be careful. Don't stop there. Keep reading. And don't just keep reading section 76. Keep reading section 137, for example. In fact, let's do both. Here in section 76, look at 73 and 74. Also they who are the spirits of men kept in prison, so spirit prison as opposed to spirit paradise, whom the Son visited and preached the gospel unto them, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh. Oh, we're getting a preview of section 138. We usually think that, oh yeah, nobody understood exactly how it worked and how Jesus preached the spirits in prison until section 138. Well, that's the best explanation. I'm excited to get there at the end of December. Uh, but the, in, in, in the letters of Peter, we see hints of that. So perhaps this is how Joseph understands at least a little bit. Through this revelation, we get a little bit more. Those, these terrestrial souls are those to whom the Son visited and preached the gospel. But again, that seems to suggest, but really, that's the max? The highest they can get is moonlight? Is terrestrial kingdom? That's not fair. They didn't have a chance. Well, 74 explains, who received not the testimony of Jesus in the flesh, but afterwards received it. And if received is an active verb rather than just a passive, it's that they, they didn't choose to receive the this, this testimony of Jesus in the flesh, which seems to suggest that the quarterback threw in the ball. They just didn't receive it. Okay? They had the chance. They just didn't accept. But afterwards they did. They kind of had a coming to themselves experience. I saw the light, even though I had rejected the light in my life. I am thankful for this second chance. But it also emphasizes the importance of our first chance. Are we accepting the gospel when we hear it? And like we talked about in section 75 last week, when we hear it taught in its, in its purity and power. Don't automatically assume that, well, I, I met that person on my mission. They slammed the door, so I get to slam the door. And the highest you'll ever get to is the terrestrial kingdom. No, these are people who really knew what they were saying no to, but then came to themselves in the, in the spirit world and changed. So are we seeing some justice here? You see, uh, it, couple that with what Joseph learns in section 137. Again, this is line upon line. He's coming to a full understanding as well. But in section 137, Joseph has a, another vision of the celestial kingdom and sees people there that surprise him. I think it was President Ballard who once said, oh yeah, you'll be surprised by a lot of people you meet in the celestial kingdom. And believe me, they'll be surprised to see you there too. Uh, a little tongue-in-cheek there. But, but in section 137, as Joseph sees this and he's pondering, like, how is that possible? I didn't think they could make it. And maybe he's even wondering, not just like traditions of men, they weren't, like they died before the church was restored, but maybe he's even wrestling with what he learned here in section 76. I thought you meant that if they died without law, they, the highest they could get was terrestrial kingdom. But I'm seeing celestial. And they're here? How's that work? And so here's the verse in 137. 
all who have died without a knowledge of this gospel. We could say those who died without law. Who would have received it if they had been permitted to tarry, so if they'd lived long enough to be there for the restoration of the gospel, shall be heirs of the celestial kingdom of God. Also, all those who shall die here henceforth without a knowledge of it, who would have received it with all their hearts, they'll be heirs of that kingdom too. So now is justice and mercy coming together in a, in a beautiful way? If you di legitimately didn't have a chance, if you didn't know what you were saying no to, if you didn't have a chance to say no or yes at all, celestial glory is, is an open possibility for you. What we're seeing here are those who missed, who didn't just miss out on the opportunity, but missed out on making the right decision, even when that decision was informed by the Spirit of God. I love the mercy of God that continuing with second chances even in the spirit world. There's His mercy. But offering terrestrial glory, there's His justice. Now, why did they miss it the first time when they got it the second? Part of it was verse 75. These are they who are honorable men of the earth, good people, resurrection of the just after all, but they were blinded by the craftiness of men. Wow, Satan was making war with you and he overcame you to a degree. Not to the same degree as the Telestial whom we'll meet in a moment, but ah, you were blinded. Somehow you still stayed honorable. You were, you were a good person, but you were blinded to the glory of the fullness of the gospel by the craftiness of men. So what's the result? 76. These are they who receive of his glory, but not of his fullness. Yes, there's glory, but no, there's not fullness. 77. These are they who receive of the presence of the Son, but not of the fullness of the Father. Interesting difference. The fullness of the Father, then, is limited to those in the celestial kingdom, whereas those in the terrestrial kingdom do receive of the presence of the Son. That doesn't mean that the Son of God is confined there. Like, oh, you mean Jesus can't go to the celestial kingdom because he's like, he's trapped as an administrator among the terrestrial? No, but he can descend to, to visit. We'll see more of that in a, in a moment. They do receive of his presence, but not the presence of the Father. I actually chuckle sometimes about that, that verse, because as we'll learn later in section 131 and 132, only in the, in the highest degree of the celestial kingdom does the eternal family exist. So in the terrestrial kingdom, you'll be separate and single, still in your saved condition, still in a kingdom of glory, but no eternal families. And you won't have the Father with you, as we see here, but you will have the presence of the Son. And to me, it's funny. Remember what I was describing at the beginning that, that the world's view of things isn't wrong. It's just incomplete. Uh, they just erase the, the beginning and the end of the diagram and are confined to this. Well, in a similar way, traditional Christianity isn't wrong about their view of heaven. They're just incomplete. Because instead of seeing a celestial glory with eternal families, with eternal increase, eternal progression, the glory of the Father, and separate, the glory of the Son. Instead, what do they picture heaven to be? We don't believe in eternal families, and we believe the Father and Son and the Holy Ghost are all the same, so we're Trinitarianism. It's Trinitarianism. So what, what's heaven going to be? It's just individual people uh, in the presence of Jesus. Well, they're right. <laughs> They just described the terrestrial kingdom. And I wonder if some of them like, see, we were right. And those Mormons were wrong. There's no eternal families. There's no separate father and son. And there's not even many Mormons here.
And, and I just, well, careful which way you're, you're sending us. Uh, it, might be not, it might not be down, it might be up a little. Uh, and, I, and I'm not trying to say that pridefully, but there's just, there's something beyond this. There's beyond, beyond the glory of the moon, there's the glory of the sun. Beyond the sun alone, there is the Father. And beyond separate salvation, there is eternal family. And beyond just glory, there is fullness and eternal increase. Fascinating that Christian heaven is terrestrial kingdom. Verse 78, wherefore they are bodies terrestrial and not bodies celestial. We're talking resurrection here. They differ in glory as the moon differs from the sun. And to learn more about them, 79, these are they who are not valiant in the testimony of Jesus. Wherefore they obtain not the crown over the kingdom of our God. I'll come back to the difference there near the end of the lesson. Verse 80, now this is the end of the vision which we saw of the terrestrial that the Lord commanded us to write while we were yet in the Spirit. That always seems to be the mark of an end of one vision, the begin, about to begin another one so quick and write it down before you get, it all gets lost in this, this flood of light. How does the poetic version describe the terrestrial kingdom? These are they that are honorable men of the earth who were blinded and duped by the cunning of men. <laughs> yeah, you got duped. Darn it, I fell for that. They received not the truth of the Savior at first, but did when they heard it in prison again. So a good clarification there. They had heard it before, they just didn't accept it. Now they're hearing it again, and they, and they decide. Not valiant for truth, they obtained not the crown, but are of that glory that's typed by the moon. They are they that come into the presence of Christ, but not to the fullness of God on his throne. Beautiful description. Verse 81 then begins the description of the telestial kingdom. And it is a degree of glory. Too often we think down like, oh, those telestial people, oh, there's hell. It's like, no, it's glorious. And we'll see just how glorious in a moment. 81, again, we saw the glory of the telestial, which glory is that of the lesser, even as the glory of the stars differ from that of the glory of the moon in the firmament. I mean, stars are glorious. They're, they're just really, really far away. And maybe that's where the word telestial comes from, because it was a created word here in this revelation. Telestial, like tele, like telescope, telephone, something far away. And so this glory is just a distant one compared to this eternal weight of glory God is trying to offer the celestial. It's starlight from a distance. Verse 82, these are they who received not the gospel of Christ, neither the testimony of Jesus neither in this life nor in the next. And again, this is an active, not a passive verb. It's not like, oh, they just didn't get it. They, no one ever threw them the ball. No, they never tried to catch it. Now, it's not as bad as those who, oh, don't, don't just drop the ball or don't just hit it away, but they grab it and then they throw it back in the quarterback's face angrily. Those are sons of perdition. That's verse 83. These are they who deny not the Holy Spirit. They haven't gotten to that point. It's not deny and defy, but they but they wouldn't receive it either. So in verse 84, this sounds harsh, but it does apply in a different kind of way. These are they who are thrust down to hell. Now, not the hell of the, of the sons of perdition. That's this lake of fire and brimstone as, as described. But there's still a hell here because they haven't been open to the invitation of heaven. This is the resurrection of the unjust after all. So if you're trying to divide a heaven and hell, if you just, 
you can't get past that stark dichotomy and just want to hold on to him, fine, then let's call it the resurrection of the just and the unjust. But just realize that in my father's house there are many mansions, and among the just there are celestial and terrestrial. And among the unjust, if you want to call it hell, fine. It's the telestial and outer darkness. But telestial is still a degree of glory. It's a glorious hell. Glorious indeed. Hell still. But hell by comparison. I mean, it's heaven compared to outer darkness. It's, it's a degree of glory compared to that degree of complete absence of glory. But compared to the heavens of the celestial and terrestrial, then yeah, I guess you would call it a hell. Just understand what you mean by that. Verse 85, these are they who shall not be redeemed from the devil until the last resurrection, until the Lord, even Christ the Lamb, shall have finished his work. I mean, if you want to make it like a, this is probably an oversimplification, but it's, it can be helpful, that if you picture the millennium, that thousand years, the morning of the first resurrection is, are the celestial souls that are resurrected at the beginning. Changed in the twinkling of an eye, right? Twinkled, blinked, winked, whatever, whatever verb you use in your language. That's the beginning. Well, the, the afternoon of the first resurrection, those are the terrestrial souls. Picture them being resurrected at some point during the millennium to receive their terrestrial body. And then at the end of the millennium, now we have the resurrection of the unjust. They're not redeemed until the last resurrection, not till the Lord Christ the Lamb finishes his work. That coincides with Satan being loosed for a little season. Why? Because, oh, you have oh the resurrection of the telestial, the unjust. They spent their lives listening to him. So when they're resurrected, does that give him some possible power once again? A final test for those, who, those children who grew up without sin unto some kind of salvation? Is there this now their final test? I mean, there's some question marks. There's some mystery there of exactly what that's going to look like in that little season. But there's some possibilities there. That will be when the, when the resurrection, the last resurrection of the telestial will take place. Verse 86, these are they who receive not of his fullness in the eternal world, but of the Holy Spirit through the ministration of the terrestrial. And then 87, and the terrestrial through the ministration of the celestial. Now the difference there, it's actually really interesting. Like we saw in the celestial, you'd have the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. But the Son can minister to the terrestrial, and the Spirit can minister to the telestial. Three degrees of glory, three members of the Godhead. The math works really well. But also just a difference in the amount of glory or fullness that those in each kingdom receive. But it's not just the, the sun descending. This sounds like, verse 87, the terrestrial will receive the ministration of the celestial. Just like in 86, the telestial received the ministration of the terrestrial. It's been taught then that those in higher kingdoms can minister to those in lower kingdoms which seems so fitting if we've spent this mortal life trying to learn to minister to one another. And those in a higher place, I think law of consecration financially, uh, what are, are, the, are the higher ministering to the lower? Think of missionary work. If think of wind and water flow like we talked about in section uh, 38, uh, places of high concentration allowing blessings to flow to lower concentration. That even happens beyond this life. Verse 88 seems to suggest that. Also the telestial receive it of the administering of angels 
who are appointed to minister for them, or who are appointed to be ministering spirits for them, for they shall be heirs of salvation. So don't just endure your ministering assignments in this life. Get used to them. This is something that looks like we'll be doing eternally, and that's a good thing. Verse 89, thus we saw in the heavenly vision the glory of the telestial, and then this amazing phrase, which surpasses all understanding. You want to talk about goodness. You want to talk about generosity on God's part. If even the telestial kingdom surpasses all understanding, how did he start the revelation? Eye hath not seen, ear hath not heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man. I, I pick, when I taught seminar, I used to use this analogy with students, you know, especially those that are about to turn 16. I said, can, can you imagine getting a car for your birthday? Well, well, imagine you've been horrible for the first 16 years of your life. And, and your 16th birthday comes and you know you deserve no gifts at all. You've been, you're, you're on the naughty list. There's like coal in every stocking for Christmas, right? Well, your birthday, same kind of thing. Like, ah. And your parents are so upset and disappointed in you that they, they give you just this tiny little, this little box for your birthday. And you're like, yeah, figures. It's my little box of, it's like one just charcoal briquette. That's all I got. But you open it up and it's car keys. And you're like, are you, wait, what? And you go out in the garage and there's a new car. And you're flabbergasted. You're like, I, I don't deserve any of this. And your parents are like, oh, I know. It's not the car we wanted to get you. And then, you know, pick whichever favorite kind of car you have. There's the celestial car that we had, that we'd wanted you to drive off into the sunset on your 16th birthday. There's a terrestrial version too. You got the telestial, which surpasses all understanding. It's like, I can't, I, I can't understand why you would give me any of this. It's kind of like when Moses comes down from the mount and sees the people worshiping the golden calf and God is so frustrated with them that he blesses them with the Aaronic priesthood. Wait, wait, huh? If that's more authority than we've ever had. It's more glorious than we've, glory than we've ever experienced. Like, well, yeah, but it's not the Melchizedek priesthood. You get the tabernacle. It's amazing, but it's not the temple. You get the ministering of angels. That's awesome. But that's a far cry from the presence of God. I'm amazed that even in God's disappointment, he blesses us. There's a verse in Ezra in the Old Testament that I absolutely love. He says to the Lord, thou hast punished us less than our iniquities deserve. Yeah, you understand the, the feeling behind that? I actually joke about that verse. Anytime I, my, whenever my sister-in-law comes and brings me like banana bread or something, I always say, thou hast punished me less than my iniquities deserve. It's like, I'm, I'm not worthy of this kindness. Well, on, on an eternal scale, if the glory of the telestial surpasses all understanding, then, then to an infinite degree, God has punished us less than our iniquities deserve. That's his mercy. That's his grace. Verse 90, no man knows it, the glory. It, I mean, it surpasses all understanding. Of course, no one knows it, except him to whom God has revealed it. It's better than you can imagine, right? Your eye hasn't seen it. Your ear hasn't heard it. Uh, your, your heart, it hasn't entered in. And if that's true of the telestial, then imagine terrestrial and celestial beyond that. And that's what the Lord's getting at in 91. 
Thus we saw the glory of the terrestrial, which excels in all things the glory of the telestial, even in glory and in power and in might and in dominion. And thus we saw the glory of the celestial, which excels in all things, where God, even the Father, reigns upon his throne forever and ever. Now here, I don't know if this is still part of the vision that, that uh, Joseph and Sidney are receiving, or if this is just them effusive in their praise, because it comes back almost this little review. He's been seeing the celestial glory, and that vision is going to continue. I mean, he hasn't really ex even explained I mean, who gets to the celestial kingdom anyway. There, there's a lot of celestial vision yet to come. But he stops here and it just, oh, but the terrestrial, and oh, but the celestial. And in this little review pause, he goes back and says in verse 93, before whose throne all things bow in humble reverence and give him glory forever and ever. They're celestial again. They who dwell in this presence are the church of the firstborn, which we talked about in the celestial vision. And they see as they are seen. They know as they are known. They received of his fullness and of his grace. So he makes them equal to him in power and in might and in dominion. You see, the, I mean, the glory of the celestial kingdom is so incredible that it kind of bleeds out and spills over into the visions even of the telestial. It's like Joseph, can we get back to that? Uh, I know I'm supposed to be talking about the, the telestial and I'm in the middle of this vision, but man, I just can't stop thinking about what you showed me earlier. To see as you're seen, to know as you're known, a perfect What's Zion? One heart, one mind, dwelling in righteousness, no poor. We get each other. There's a perfect unity there. I'm not hiding behind anything. There's no, there's no hypocrisy here. I, I see as I'm seen. And I'm okay with that. I know as I'm known. No wonder the celestial kingdom is described as one great Urim and Thummim. Great symbol there. Since Urim and Thummim is, is a way to come to know all things. Well, we know as we're known. We see as we're seen. That's celestial. Verse 96, the glory of the celestial is one, even as the glory of the sun is one. 97, the glory of the terrestrial is one, even as the glory of the moon is one. And then we'll get back to our vision. Sorry, we kind of, you know, turned up the dimmer switch real fast to, to full capacity. And then, okay, back to telestial. Verse 98, and the glory of the telestial is one, even as the glory of the stars is one. For as one star differs from another star in glory, even so differs one from another in glory in the telestial world. And then he starts to describe who these telestial souls are. Fascinating description. Verse 99, these are they who are of Paul and of Apollos and of Cephas. And Cephas is just the Greek way of saying Peter. And you're like, wait, wait, these are telestial souls? What's wrong with that? I, I want to I hang out with Paul and Apollos and Cephas. Well, no, it's not that you're hanging out with them. It's that you've claimed to be of them. And of them alone, it's like we're lesser loyalties is how I describe this. Rather than being consumed in Christ, oh, I'm a, I'm a Paul guy. I'm, I'm a Peter guy. There was actually some friction at times between Paul and Peter. Well, which one are you siding with? And in the celestial glory, you're not taking sides. You're just on the side of Christ, and so is everyone else that's there. But to, to settle for lesser loyalties... We've, we've missed something. Now, verse 100 suggests something that might be a little tricky. These are they who say they are some of one and some of another. So those are these lesser loyalties. He's kind of filing off in, in different directions. But then he says, some of Christ. Wait, huh? That, that, that was the focal point of the celestial. 
some of Christ. Oh, and some of John and some of Moses and some of Elias and some of Isaiah and some of Isaiah and some of Enoch. What do you, what do you mean? But you included Christ in the list. It wasn't enough to just hold to one prophet and say, oh, that's my guy. And these are prophets even, let alone like hold to some movie star or some sports team or some political party or some, some business brand. No, these are even prophets and apostles of God. And Christ was included in the list. But I think the phrase to, to keep an eye on in 100 is they say they are of one and some of another. So even those who say they are of Christ. Remember what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount? There are some who say, Lord, Lord. Ah, well, it's just lip service. Draw near me with the lips. Hearts are far from me. That's the heart that I require. So don't just claim me. Become like me. Receive me. That's the difference. See, you see it really clear in 101. But they received not the gospel, neither the testimony of Jesus, neither the prophets, neither the everlasting covenant. You know, talk all you want. Claim the loyalty. You're not living like it. So 102, last of all, these all are they who will not be gathered with the saints to be caught up unto the church of the firstborn and received into the cloud. So that's not morning of the first resurrection. That's not changed in the twinkling of an eye. 103, now we start to get more specific. What did they do, though? These are they who are liars and sorcerers and adulterers and whoremongers and whosoever loves and makes a lie. Same list he gave back in section 63, if I remember. To me, the interesting one there is liars. It's one thing to talk about adulterers and, and whoremongers and things and I always laugh at it. I mean, I picture someone going to prison and what's like getting to know you games. And it's like, you know, who are you? Where are you from? But probably the ultimate question is, so what'd you do? What'd you do to get in here? Now, if there's any kind of getting to know you moments in the Telestra Kingdom, I'm sure it's similar. Like, who are you? Where did you live? Probably more, when did you live? That's interesting. How did you die? That's probably part of the getting to know you game. And also, what did you do? And among adulterers and whoremongers, you could you know, picture murderers and all these others, liars? Whoa, that's serious. Just the other day I was talking with my son and he's like, yeah, T. Lester King, that's like the worst of the worst, right? I'm like, well, the list includes liars. And he's like, what? what, what? And that was an eye opener. It's like, so what'd you do to get in here? Oh, I lied. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, we all did. But what would you do to get in here? No, that's it. Wow. God considers honesty on that level? Serious business. I mean, terrestrial, you at least have to be honorable. Your honor, truth. I don't think we can pat ourselves on, our, on the back just because we're avoiding some of the most uh, grave and sinister of sins. I, the Lord, cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. And it's even those what might be considered relatively minor infractions, they can still bring you to a telestial glory. Better than the hell of outer darkness, but still a hell of sorts compared to celestial and even terrestrial glory. I'll, at the end, again, I'll put them all, the three side by side and kind of uh, chart form so that we can really tell the difference. But that, that's a hint to that. Verse 104, these are they who suffer the wrath of God on earth. And 105, they who suffer the vengeance of eternal fire. 
And it's not the fire and brimstone of outer darkness. Again, I, I'll repeat that. But as Joseph Smith said at one point, it's, it's the feeling of regret that, that is within you like fire. It just keeps gnawing at you. I could have lived more righteously. I could have repented more. I could have received more intentionally the testimony of Jesus Christ. And I didn't. I'll come back to that thought in just a moment. In verse 106, these are they who are cast down to hell and suffer the wrath of Almighty God until the fullness of times when Christ shall have subdued all enemies under his feet and shall have perfected his work. Notice the word until. They only suffer that until Christ subdues all enemies, including sin and death, including Satan himself, including the sufferings for our own sins. That's back to section 19 also. If you don't repent, then you must suffer, even as I suffered. But that eternal torment, that everlasting punishment, is quality, not quantity. It's depth, not duration. And the duration will end. You'll suffer that wrath until Christ puts all things under his feet. And since you wouldn't allow him to put the demands of justice under his feet, you have to put them under yours by suffering for your own sin. That's, that's section 19. 107, when he shall deliver up the kingdom and present it unto the Father spotless, saying, I have overcome and have trodden the winepress alone, even the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. That was me. I did that so that these wouldn't have to suffer. These ended up suffering that way themselves since they wouldn't accept mine. But I have trodden that winepress and here is the kingdom. I present it to you, Father, spotless. None of those that you have given me have I lost except the sons of perdition who, who refused to be found, those lost ones, the defiantly gone. Verse 108, Then shall he be crowned with the crown of his glory, to sit on the throne of his power, to reign forever and ever. There's the good news for Jesus. And then 109, the not-so-good news for the telestial. Behold and lo, we saw the glory, that's good, and the inhabitants of the celestial world, that they were as innumerable as the stars in the firmament of heaven, or as the sand upon the seashore. So yes, that's an innumerable host also. But do not lose sight of the innumerable host in the celestial kingdom. There are real consequences. There's innumerable hosts in both, but understand that it's not a lonely heaven. We have to keep that in mind. Among the celestial in 110, Joseph and Sidney heard the voice of the Lord saying, These all shall bow the knee. Every tongue shall confess to him who sits upon the throne forever and ever. That goes back to what we've seen elsewhere in Scripture. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. But they could have done it earlier. In Elder Maxwell's magnificent talk, one of the best examples of reverse psychology I've ever heard from the pulpit. His talk was called, Why Not Now? And he talks about that. Someday every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Then why not do it now when it will mean something? It won't mean as much when you are brought to your knees because you are no longer able to stand. The telestial wouldn't receive that testimony in life or even in the spirit world. Well, they're now admitting it because there's, there's no denying it. Well, 
unless you're a son of perdition, in which case you deny it to the very end. Verse 111, they shall be judged according to their works, and every man shall receive according to his own works his own dominion in the mansions which are prepared. So even telestial, in my father's house are many mansions. It's just a lot of differences as far as square footage is concerned. And not just square footage, but just the glory that God has given you. Verse 112, they shall be servants of the Most High, but where God and Christ dwell, they cannot come, worlds without end. And that cessation of progression, that's the damnation. The water stops. It can't flow. It can't increase. And that's, that's hell. That's regret. As Joseph describes it, the great misery of departed spirits in the world of spirits, where they go after death, is to know that they have come short of the glory that others enjoy and that they might have enjoyed themselves. And worst of all, he says, they are their own accusers. I knew better. I could have done more. I, that, that, would, that would be hell to me. That is regret. It's not the car I wanted to give you on your 16th birthday. It's not the priesthood authority I had on the first set of tablets. It's heaven but not quite as heavenly as I, I dreamed it of being. Well, verse 113, that vision comes to a close. This is the end of the vision which we saw, which we were commanded to write while we were yet in the Spirit. Always strike while the iron's hot. In the poetic version, the telestial kingdom is described, these are they that are sinful, the wicked at large, that glutted their passion by meanness or worth. All liars, adulterers, sorcerers, proud, and suffer as promised God's wrath on the earth. These are they that came out for Apollos and Paul, for Cephas and Jesus in all kinds of hope, for Enoch and Moses and Peter and John, for Luther and Calvin and even the Pope. Hmm, taking, a, taking a swipe at Protestantism and Catholicism there. For they never received the gospel of Christ, nor the prophetic spirit that came from the Lord nor the covenants neither which Jacob once had, they went their own way, and they have their reward. Well, the last five verses or so then conclude this revelation. The visions have ended, but what, what's the, oh, the exclamation point at the end? Verse 114, but great and marvelous are the works of the Lord, and the mysteries of his kingdom which he showed unto us, which surpass all understanding in glory and in might and in dominion. We're coming full circle. Sound a little like what he said in those first verses of promise and presentation. 115, which he commanded us we should not write while we were yet in the spirit and are not lawful for man to utter. Now that's an interesting one because in the past it keeps being write this while you're in the spirit. This one, well, don't write this. Uh, yes, stay in the spirit, but do not write it. It's not lawful to. Because some things no eye can see and no ear can hear. It hasn't entered in the heart of man. I only, for you, you have to have a little, well, you have to have a lot of faith. And have a glimpse, just peek through the veil briefly, look through the chain link fence. But to really understand it, you have to live into it and be able to experience it directly. There's going to be no secondhand heaven. You need to, to grow into it yourself. Verse 116, they couldn't explain it anyway. Neither is man capable to make them known, for they are only to be seen and understood by the power of the Holy Spirit, 
which God bestows on those who love him and purify themselves before him. This is a gift of the Spirit, this understanding. Like I said at the beginning, this, this revelation and the truths that it contains cannot be explained. They can only be experienced. And I pray that in some way the Holy Ghost has helped you experience some of this today. And if not during this actual lesson, perhaps in the time when you marvel and meditate yourself over these things. That's when we're getting closer to verse 117. To whom he grants this privilege of seeing and knowing for themselves. It has to be a first-hand experience, not a second-hand account. 118 and 19 then it ends, that through the power and manifestation of the Spirit, while in the flesh, they may be able to bear his presence in the world of glory. And to God and the Lamb be glory and honor and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's how we're going to experience it, and it's who we're going to experience it with. It's going to have to be through the power and manifestation of the Spirit. If we're ever going to see that or experience it in the flesh before we get there in the Spirit and the resurrected flesh, the body, then it has to be through the Holy Ghost. And who gets all the credit? God. The glory, the, the honor, the dominion to the Father and the Son. It's their kingdom that they're trying to welcome us into. The poetic version summarizes it this way. And thus I beheld in the vision of heaven the telestial glory, dominion, and bliss, surpassing the great understanding of men, unknown save revealed in a world vain as this. And lo, I beheld the terrestrial too, which excels the telestial in glory and light, in splendor and knowledge and wisdom and joy, in blessings and graces, dominion and might. I beheld the celestial in glory sublime, which is the most excellent kingdom that is, where God, even the Father, in harmony reigns, almighty, supreme, and eternal, in bliss. That's the bliss he wants to give with us, his children. There's the ultimate eternal family, the family of God, all of us. That's the goal. And to have this vision laid out before Joseph and Sidney and through them laid out before all of us, to put in perspective celestial, terrestrial, and telestial. The choice is ours. It's like Moses. I have set before thee life and death. So choose. And choose life. I have set before thee celestial and terrestrial and telestial. So choose. But choose celestial. When you take all of this revelation together and kind of back up and start to divide things out and really see them side by side, I hope the juxtaposition makes the choice all the more clear, all the more compelling. Perhaps this might help. To go from telestial to terrestrial to celestial, as we all know, that's stars to moon to sun. If you're in pitch black, if you're in the back of a cave and they turn the lights off so you can't see the hand in front of your face, oh, I'll take starlight any day. That brilliant Milky Way that made my daughter's heart leap and stomach churn and jaw drop, the awe, the transcendence she experienced, that's telestial. But as glorious as starlight is, imagine the moon. Picture a full moon, maybe on a, on a snowy night, where it's, it feels bright enough to be able to really see. It's amazing how bright the moon can really be. That's terrestrial glory. But as, as glorious as the moon can be, I've never gotten a moon burn 
It's still a far cry from the sun, the brilliant, powerful, all-consuming, life-giving light of the sun. That's celestial glory. Don't settle for anything less. Who ministers to each? That's the difference between the Holy Ghost and the Son of God and the Father of us all. I'm amazed. To me, that perhaps explains why the glory of the telestial still surpasses all understanding. Because that's how I feel whenever I feel the Holy Ghost. When I truly feel the Spirit, it is a transcendent experience. It's a glorious experience. But that's still a telestial experience? I mean, put it in those terms and it's like, whoa, seriously? The, the, the feeling of the Holy Ghost is a telestial experience? Well, compared to what you'd feel in terrestrial or celestial, if that's the glory of having the Spirit with you, imagine Jesus Christ himself being your companion and guide. And if that's beyond understanding, then imagine the presence of heavenly parents and the eternal family and the Son and the Spirit, but I cannot say the least part of what I feel, to borrow Alma's words. It surpasseth all understanding. No wonder I can't explain it. No wonder it's beyond the glory of my dreams because I can't dream that good. That celestial. How about this for a difference? In the telestial kingdom, they reject the testimony of Jesus. In the terrestrial, they relent to the testimony of Jesus. They reject it the first time, but then relent and accept it in the spirit world. Celestial, meanwhile, they receive the testimony of Jesus. To me, the greatest differentiation between those three is, is, what, is what we do with the testimony of Christ. How do we feel about Jesus? Reject or relent or truly receive your deciding celestial, terrestrial, celestial with something supposedly as simple as that. How about some other differentiations? The telestial is the willfully blind. The terrestrial are the blinded. And the celestial are those who see as they are seen. The telestial are the wicked. The terrestrial are the honorable. The celestial are the valiant. Beautiful difference to ponder between honorable and truly valiant. Or maybe we put it in these terms. Telestial people won't do. They won't keep the commandments. They break them. Terrestrial people will do, but because they have to. Whereas celestial people do because they love to. They've had that mighty change of heart. The telestial have succumbed to idleness and idleness, I-D-L-E and I-D-O-L. Whereas those in the terrestrial kingdom are slothful servants. They have to be compelled in all things, but they do it. Compare that to celestial. They are agents unto themselves. They know the power is in them. They're anxiously engaged. This one might really help put things in perspective. The telestial are guilty of sins of commission, while the terrestrial are guilty of sins of omission, while the celestial are guilty of no sins at all because they've repented and been forgiven through the atonement of Jesus Christ. You understand that difference? It's almost like default position is terrestrial. Yeah, you haven't done anything. I mean, you haven't done anything wrong. That would send you to telestial. But you haven't really done anything right because that would send you to celestial. You catch that difference? So I'm committing things wrong telestial. I just haven't done anything right. I'm honorable. I'm not, make, I'm not making these bad mistakes. But yeah, but have you done it? Have you done any good in the world today? Have, are, are you making a difference? 
become celestial through the perfect atonement of Jesus Christ. Live as he lives. Serve as he serves. In the telestial kingdom, there is condemnation. In the terrestrial kingdom, there is justification. And in the celestial kingdom, there is sanctification. Guilt in telestial. Innocence in terrestrial. Holiness in celestial. I've often talked to you about the three pillars of eternity and the story arc of life, that it's creation, fall, atonement. Well, those are the three degrees of glory, too. Creation, that's the terrestrial phase. And if that's all it is, oh, it's innocent there. It's great. But there's no challenge. There's no, you haven't really done anything. You haven't done anything wrong. We haven't done anything right. And so creation is terrestrial existence. Fall, there's telestial existence. Don't stay there. Progress onward to atonement, that is celestial glory. But even as you're progressing on, if you just come back to the elevation of Eden, that's justification. Well, now you're back to terrestrial. You're out of the pit, but you're, just, you're still just on the plateau. You want to climb the heights? Sanctification, becoming holy, knowing as we are known, that only happens as we are made perfect through the perfect atonement of Jesus Christ. That's the celestial kingdom. That's the atonement. And it's all made possible through the atoning one himself, Jesus Christ. I, I pray, my friends, that you have seen him and felt his guiding hand through our discussion of this incredible revelation. If you have, then you can rejoice over this flood of light like so many of the early saints did once they were able to wrap their minds and hearts around it. W.W. Phelps, again, part of this epic poem that we've been uh, learning from. When he read this revelation, he called it the greatest news that was ever published to man. And he was a publisher. It's like, can I put this in my newspaper? I got to get the word out. Prose form, poetic form, I don't care. We just need to get the word. This is greatest news ever. Extra, extra, here, I'll read all about it. How did the revelation begin? Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. The world needs to know. Joseph Smith himself Reflecting on this section said, the document is a transcript from the records of the eternal world. Wow. No wonder they had to write it while in the spirit. It's a transcript from the eternal world. Wilfred Woodruff had one of my favorite descriptions of it. He said, when I read the vision, it enlightened my mind and gave me great joy. There's mind and heart. Explain and experience. It appeared to me that the God who revealed that principle unto man was wise, just, and true, possessed both the best of attributes and good sense and knowledge. I felt he was consistent with both love, mercy, justice, and judgment, and I felt to love the Lord more than ever before in my life. I love how personal Wilfred Woodruff is getting with God there. Like, what kind of a person would reveal this? What kind of a being would tell us this kind of reality? Would create such a reality? Man, best of attributes, good sense, a lot of knowledge. I just, I just love how, man, God's really smart, you think? He's got a lot of good sense. This just makes perfect sense to me. But so loving, man, I just want to love him back more than I ever have. And I hope that's the result for each of us to love him and want to show that love by, by living worthy of receiving all that he desires to give us beyond our wildest imagination. God is good, and this revelation evidences it. 
With that in mind, I just want to close today with two quotes from Joseph Smith that are two of my favorites. They're a little long, but I think they're worth repeating. And after I give you the long version, I'll boil it down to two two-word phrases that I hope will stick in our mind and heart. Here's the first. While one portion of the human race is judging and condemning the other without mercy, the great parent of the universe looks upon the whole human family with a fatherly care and paternal regard. He holds the reins of judgment in his hands. He's a wise lawgiver and will judge all men, not according to the narrow, contracted notions of men, but according to the deeds done in the body, whether they be good or evil. We need not doubt the wisdom and intelligence of the great Jehovah. He will award judgment and mercy to all nations according to their several deserts, their means of obtaining intelligence, the laws by which they are governed, the facilities afforded them of obtaining correct information, and his inscrutable designs in relation to the human family. And when the designs of God shall be made manifest, like they were here in section 76, and the curtain of futurity be withdrawn, so when we finally see it all fulfilled, we shall all of us eventually have to confess that the judge of all the earth has done right. What a testimony of God's will of his wisdom, of his omniscience and his omnipotence, of his perfect mercy and, judge, and justice and judgment to balance the whole thing. The God, is, the God reigns within the Goldilocks zone. He proves every contrary. And by the end, when we all see it laid out before us, we will all confess, you were right. I am sorry for condemning and judging others, but even worse, I'm sorry for judging or condemning you like I didn't think he knew what you were doing, like your plan's never going to work. The judge of all the earth has done right. Now that's the first statement. The second, like unto it, Joseph said this, the great Jehovah contemplated the whole of the events connected with the earth pertaining to the plan of salvation before it rolled into existence. He comprehended the fall of man and his redemption. He knew the plan of salvation and pointed it out. He was acquainted with the situation of all nations and with their destiny. He ordered all things according to the counsel of his own will. He knows the situation of both the living and the dead, and then my favorite phrase, and has made ample provision for their redemption according to their several circumstances and the laws of the kingdom of God, whether in this world or in the world to come. Take those two long statements and boil them each down to a two-word phrase. From the first, paternal regard. Paternal, fatherly regard. He watches, he sees, he regards us. He, he knows our needs. And that God of paternal regard has made what? Ample provision. He's provided. And he's provided amply He's laid it all out. He's, he's crossed every T, dotted every I, suffered for every sin, made it possible for all of God's children to come home. Both the Father and the Son, to see their role in our salvation. Sometimes we pass judgment upon ourselves or upon others, and usually we're too harsh in either direction. And I pray, my friends, that as we study and ponder, as we marvel and meditate over 
the vision contained in section 76, that we will come away with a sense of awe and gratitude and admiration and praise and love, knowing that our God is a God of paternal regard and ample provision.